Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Thursday, January 20th, 2022. This is part two of our Best Movie Moments of 2021 podcast episode. If you've not listened to the first part, go back and listen to that. That episode was published a couple days ago. But now let's just jump back into the conversation. So, uh, Jacob, you want to set us up? Yeah, we're starting at the top of our order, well, which goes uh, HT, Chris, Brad, Ben, and then myself. So it is uh, HT's turn to uh, kill and keep stuff. So HT, I think you mentioned off mic you wanted to start with one of our big chunks of, of moments here. Yeah, we have about four moments from The Matrix Resurrection. So I think I'm going to do a big keep and kill from that section. So first we have uh, The Matrix Resurrections. Trinity remembers Neo, turns against her stupid fake family, uh, which is the line I assume was written by Chris. Yes, that was me. <laughs> uh, the Matrix Resurrections, Trinity catches Neo. Uh, the Matrix Resurrections, corporate bullet time. And lastly, machine friends from The Matrix Resurrections. Um, and I think... For me, I will have to cut Machine Friends first because no. I know. Okay, first of all, I love the Machine Friends. I love that they're friend-shaped machines. Uh, <laughs> I love that there's one named baby because it's a baby, but it's cyber. Um, and um, I think that they're great, but they're just kind of like a fun 
wrinkle on the whole Matrix Resur- Resurrections thing, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that they're the best moment of that movie. Can I just can I say, can I say goodbye to them? Okay. In addition to being very, very cute, in addition to being just delightful designs, I love that it, they, they represent that progress has been made between the Matrix films. It's not like the machines all went evil. There are a lot of characters and moments who are machines, who are AIs in, in Resurrections, who, who, who make it very, very clear that you know the, the, the trilogy was not not. The war, the war and sacrifices were not, were, 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 had impact. There, there, is the, there are these connections. I love the world building, and I love how it honors the sacrifices Neo and Trinity made in the original movie. That's it. Okay. We we can cut it. We can kill it. Okay. Our piece has been said for the machine friends. Okay. So I feel like the Trinity remembers Neo turns against her her stupid fake family and Trinity catches Neo as as part of one long climax. A long one to be sure, but an awesome one at that. And I feel like I, I kind of pair them together, but I can be persuaded otherwise because both sequences have their own merits and have their own sort of things that I think I love about them. Um, which do I prefer over the two of them? Uh, I love when Trinity catches Neo because I love how that turns on its head uh, the idea of Neo as the one um, and that now it's being almost handed over to Trinity, who in the original trilogy uh, was often kind of more skilled in some senses and more experienced and more adept at being possibly the savior of this whole world. And there's actually a sort of ongoing criticism of of like these kind of sci-fi franchises and how they have like a a chosen one who's often a male character who kind of comes into it and is very just uh, naive and has to learn, go through the whole hero's journey thing. But then he's sort of guided on by this super cool female character who should be the real hero anyways. And it's something that we see in the Matrix. It's something we see in the Lego movie. And it's something that's like kind of played on in many other franchises. And I feel like this was almost a direct... um, response to that in a way that I thought was super cool and I was just very excited to see her flying and and holding on to Neo as he was dangling and it was it was excellent so I okay I guess that's one of the one I'm apparently leading towards <laughs> <laughs> also, I, I do love the Trinity remembers Neo moment and I love the entire action that follows because it's so unlike other Matrix action the movie is so deliberately not indulging in the kind of action you remember uh, the action that follows that scene is, is so ugly and, and it really does stand in for one of the movie's messages of people like where the bodies are being flung from skyscrapers to try to stop our heroes. That's such a cool scene. It, it's, it's, it's also terrifying. It really leans into the, one of the ideas of what's terrible. What's one of the things that's terrifying now is the masses being used by, you know, the system to harm you, you know, people literally fleeing their lives at over nonsensical reasons. It, it really leans into what's scary in 2021 slash 2022. We're just, fodder we're just bullets for these corporations that control our capital society yes so but my one concern is that uh trinity remembering neo and then trinity catching neo is separated by about 20 minutes of his action scenes i don't i don't think we can reasonably call them a single moment i think we need to do both or pick that's fair i will say one thing about the trinity Trinity remembers neo scene that i really like is that it emphasizes that the matrix resurrections is about the power of holding hands (laughs) <laughs> uh, Chris, I know you have strong feelings on this. Uh, is, is there one here you prefer? Ooh, I don't know. I, <laughs> I, I'm fine going with HT's pick just because uh, we should move this along, and she did a really good job selling that. I do like um, the whole, you know, uh, Trinity remembers, and I like that she rejects her dumb family, but I'm I'm fine <laughs> cutting. 
how we, we can probably move remember her family into in discussion just in case we have a, an open slot later on we think it belongs there but i think we can probably lock in um Tr- uh, trinity uh catching neo do, do brad and ben have, have thoughts on this what do you think brad um i think which one did you pick again Tr- uh, ht trinity catches neo yeah i think that's probably the the one that is a bigger deal because it solidifies Trinity's place in the universe. And that that's like the bigger, bigger moment. And they jumped off a real building for it. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I like that one too. Should we also talk about corporate bullet time here? Because I, I put this one on here and uh, HD, do you want to speak on it first or should I? Uh, you go ahead, Jacob. The idea that there is no bullet time action in the matrix. And the fact that there is a, a scene early on where a focus group, Sorry, not focus group, a group of creatives thinking about the next Matrix video game, talk about all the things audiences want, and they and they deliberately withhold this, and it's because the machines have taken it over. What, it, what was Neo's superpower, the thing that he did so well, people were excited about, has been co-opted by the man. The corporations own it now, and it's been it's just been it's being used to keep us down. The idea of corporations taking what's cool, what we love, and repackaging it in a way that you know does not serve us or excite us the way it did uh, is the matrix uh, resurrections adds the most meta and adds the most damning adds the most critical of what audiences want out of movies now nostalgia. I would love putting this in the top 50, but we already have a moment in there. I at least want to get it to in discussion. I'm I'm curious. Other people think I actually thought that corporate bullet time was referring to the warehouse scene where the analyst played by Neil Patrick Harris, uh, you know, reveal all. uh, I'm referring to that because, because because the the machines, corporations, the one bullet time sequence in the movie is is Neil Patrick Harris using it to monologue his evil plan? Yes. Our heroes, our heroes, never actually get to do bullet time. I I actually really really love this scene too because it uh, cements you know it lays bare the Matrix Resurrections message that it's about corporations weaponizing the things that was so important in our the original story and turning it into something trivial, like they said. And it's about weaponizing not just nostalgia, but yearning. I thought that was so cool. I love that idea that it's a, it's a machine powered by yearning and that it's something that's so um, cynical as that. Uh, and uh, yeah, the, the entire scene I think is, is great. Um, I think it's also neat that Lana Wachowski invented another technology for this scene. So I think it's also super cool. I'd be fine with putting it in discussions. Chris, yeah. what do you think about this scene? I did not love this scene, and I'm sorry oh, to be a wow. joy. I, I really like this movie. I felt like, I know it's the point of the scene, but I felt like it goes on fucking forever. And I get that everything is slowed down and stuff, but I remember like when I saw it, I was just like, boy, this scene is really taking a long time. <laughs> All right, well... Yeah, I don't really love it either. And if we have this other moment in there already and then another one in discussion, I kind of feel like maybe we should just get rid of this one, take it off the board, because we have, what, like 85 other things to talk about. So, yeah. All right, uh, let's cut it. I don't know. I think H.C. and I gave this moment its due. But if there's enough dissension, then I'm not going to... I'm okay getting rid of it. Yes. All right, H.C., does that count as as your kills and your keeps then? Yes, that's my kill and keep. Okay, in that case, let's move on to Chris. Kill and keep. All right, I'm going to go wild here. I'm going to do uh, two different Ridley Scott things, and I'm going to cut and keep things. I'm going to go crazy. Let's do it. Um, (laughs) All right, so first of all, uh, we should probably cut the last duel, the last duel, even though it is the the titular duel. I feel like we already have one 
Leia's duel thing on the list, and that is, of course, everything Ben Affleck does in the Leia's duel. And I don't, <laughs> I don't think we need two Leia's duel moments, honestly. Even though Leia's duel absolutely mm-hmm. rules and it rocks, and you should watch it. It's God, gone. it's so violent. I love it's on it. HBO it's Max. so so yeah. grimy. It's so yeah. nasty. And the duel, and I just want to say too, like the duel itself is just awesome because it goes from like several bouts of jousting to an intense sword fight to just them tearing at each other, and then it culminates, you know, with Matt Damon, you know put it like pointing his hands towards his wife and being like, look, this is, you know, this is an innocent woman. Like, fuck you guys. Also, let's talk about how he stabs Adam driver through the mouth, which yes. is you know very on the nose because you know, Adam driver, his words are what led them to this whole situation and stuff. So <laughs> uh, yeah, it's great. Yeah. I will say there's, a, there's another medieval sword fight on this list that I think belongs more in a discussion. So we'll, we'll save this. We'll save it for that one. We'll cut last duel. Great. And so we have two House of Gucci things on here because we felt like we needed to have something from House of Gucci. And I put both of, the, both of these on here. Uh, one of them is there's a scene where Jared Leto, uh, who, who plays um, Super Mario, um, he shows up at Jeremy <laughs> Irons' house. <laughs> Jeremy Irons is his uncle and he shows up at his house and he's like, ah, I have all the great ideas. And Jeremy Irons is like, you're a fucking loser. and I hate your guts. Uh, it's a very funny scene. Um, I also have, uh, there's a scene where Lady Gaga and Adam Driver have some sex. They have some sex in a trailer and they roll around and they knock shit off desks. And I think I'm going to lean towards keeping the sex scene here because uh, there aren't a lot of sex scenes in movies anymore. And also there's this weird subset of Twitter who are like, we don't need sex scenes in movies. And I'm taking a stand here to say, we do need sex scenes in movies. And Ridley Scott is still out there at the age of 832. <laughs> he's throwing he's throwing hot sex scenes in his movies. So I'm I'm voting for keeping Adam Driver, Lady Gaga have some crazy sex in a trailer. Although I do love the scene where Jeremy Irons throws a pie in Jared Leto's face. <laughs> I, I think Chris is on point here. I agree with both these choices. Yeah, same. All right. I'm done, I guess. Move on. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so who's next in our rotation? Uh, Brad. That was Brad. Okay, um, let's see. What do I want to cut? Um, I think I would like to deal with uh, the Mitchells versus Machines. Because we have three moments from here on here, and this is a movie that I know that um, I think pretty much all of us uh, love, at least in some capacity. Um, but I feel like maybe maybe only two at the most, I think, from the, the, the three that we have here should be uh, on the list. So I'll, I'll run through them here real quick. We have uh, the Furby fight, uh, which is a sequence that takes place in the middle of the movie uh, where the Mitchells end up in a mall. And the as the artificial intelligence that is uh, taking over humanity um, infects a giant Furby <laughs> inside of a mall and the family has to deal with it and an army of other gadgets swarming through this shopping mall. Uh, it is such a wild, hilarious, twisted, weird, funny sequence that is full of just incredible animation, and it's just, uh, I, I, I can't say anything more than that. I mean, it's a, they're fighting with a giant Furby, uh, and it has them all working together um, and working through their just functions and stuff like that, and so I just, uh, yeah, great scene. Um, we also have um, the dog, uh, Doug the Pug, 
who is also a uh, a pig and a loaf of bread. Um, and th- this seems like uh, more of just an overarching love for this weird, wonderful, wacky creature that is oh, part of the family. I put this on here specifically for the climax of the movie. Okay. Where, where, where uh, Katie saves the world by tricking the AI and then not knowing what her dog is, okay. uh, which is <laughs> such an amazing payoff. Like this movie's all about payoff. That screenplay is so tight. Every joke pays off. Every setup pays off. And the climax, the last 20 minutes, is just a nonstop series of emotional action and comedic beats that all pay off as an avalanche of satisfaction, starting with the machines not not able to stay off the dog is a dog, a pig, or a loaf of bread. There you go. Uh, and then the final one, uh, and this is kind of an all-encompassing thing that runs throughout the entire movie, and that's uh, that Katie Mitchell is LGBTQ. Uh, but it's something that isn't necessarily uh, waved around and like thrust in your face as like, oh, wow, this character is LGBTQ, and it's such an important uh, plot point and everyone needs to understand that this movie is about diversity and acceptance but it does it in such a subtle way that it it just comes from a genuine place of like loving acceptance and it uses the the idea of a father not necessarily easily connecting with her daughter over technology um, to address that and like it, uh, it come, the, the details of her lifestyle come through not only in her obsession with filmmaking but in subtle character details that are in, in her wardrobe and just uh, generally like the way she behaves and like her um, preferences and like the things that she's drawn to creatively and it's uh, it's crazy um, that this is something that is so progressive right now but as we've seen with uh, Disney, Marvel, Lucasfilm, what have you, there's really a hard um, push, uh, a pushback to have prominent LGBTQ characters and making a big deal out of the smallest, you know, littlest characters being included uh, in movies like this. So to have a character, a lead character like this, that that is LGBTQ is such a huge thing. Yeah, I, I, my whole thing is so often as Brad to Disney's like, look, we have a gay character, and it's a blinky missing moment, or it's a character who is just there, but they maybe they, they mention a husband. Whereas uh, Katie is, and any queer person watching this movie knew from frame one, oh, <laughs> Katie is not straight. Whether that means pan, bi, or or, or lesbian, she is not a, a straight person, and it is really built into the fabric and texture of the movie. And when it's kind of, when it's sort of, when it's confirmed at the end, like there's a throwaway line about her having. A, a, a girlfriend it is not that disney thing or it's just like hey look she's gay or hey look she's dating a girl it is the payoff to something that everybody in the audience or a large part of the audience i think already understood uh what, my only concern is that it's not a moment it's something i'm glad we're talking about i put on this list uh i, I think, think that's fine though considering like chris had referenced before we did say elizabeth debicki is tall in tennis true <laughs> we have every scene with ben affleck so i think we can get we can sort of we can we make the rules here. No, yeah. who, who's going to stop us? No one. Yeah. It's my one concern is which of these do all three make? Because I, I, I think all three of these like should be in serious contention for places in the top 50. I would probably vote for the Furby fight because I think it's just so visually and narratively fun. Um, and I love the idea of a giant Furby kaiju as well. I mean, yeah, if we if we have to pick one from this film, I feel like the one thing everyone remembers about this movie is is the giant Furby. It was like all over when the movie came out, like the the Netflix Twitter account was tweeting out images of it. And everyone was, you know, I, I feel like that's like the 
the moment from this movie, even mm-hmm. though I, I, I love this movie all over. I, I know Ben is not a fan because he's dead inside, but um, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm, should I be controversial and say, I only liked this movie. Yeah. Oh my I thought it was God. fine. I liked it. I didn't love it. Get out well, of here. Both I, of you. I do think, yeah, I think that uh, Chris is right about the Furby uh, fight being like one of the biggest moments of the movie. And then I, 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 but I just love the overall thing of the Katie being LGBTQ. So if we do cut one, I think maybe it should be, you know, the Doug, the, Pug moment confusing AI. Oh, that right. word is very funny. It's it really is. funny. It is very funny. Yeah. Okay, I'm cool cutting the dog pig loaf of bread. Um, I think the basic conversation here, it sounds like Furby is locked in and maybe Katie being not straight is in, in discussion. I'm fine with that. Sure. sure. I'm actually mad at myself because I forgot to put uh, Prancer belongs to the canyon now on this list because <laughs> I think that's like the best joke in the movie. Just this complete throwaway nonsense moment that is just like all of a sudden the movie turns into like Lord of the Rings where they're on the family is like on the side of a mountain and like everything is so chaotic and just ramped all the way up to, to 11. It's just a, a really movie is moment. full of good moments. Yeah. I, I, I'd argue that any given minute of that movie has a moment that could po- that could seriously be discussed for top 50 of the year. But <laughs> Okay, so that was um, uh, Brad, what do you want? Is it that counts both your cut and your keep, or do you want to grab something else? Uh, yeah, that's fine. I'm good. We, we, we dealt with three three different ones, so. Alright, Ben. Um, I think we gotta cut something from In the Heights. We have four moments here. Um, a couple songs, uh, Pacencia Ife and uh, 96,000 and the opening song are all separated out on this list. And then one specific moment, I think within a song or it certainly yeah, as I a, think it's within I, the opening dance, song. But, it's, right? uh, it's within the opening song, but it's a single shot with the opening song. I would, if we're going to do the opening song, I think this shot should be the moment because it is okay. for me. Uh, sorry, should, I, should I jump in, Benny? Are, yeah, are you yeah, okay? yeah, absolutely. It's a shot where Usnavi is singing, but he's looking out the uh, window of his shop. And the camera is pushing in into a close-up through, through this window. And the street is full of dancers who are dancing uh, to, to his song. But they're reflected in the, in, the, in the glass around him. So it's simultaneously a close-up of him singing. So we get his emotion. We get, we get to his yearning, his I want song. But also the wide range, his wide vista of all the dancers backing him up. And it's one thing you can't do in stage. It's one thing that West Side Story, a movie we, we, we freaking love, can't do as a more traditional musical, which is combine a wide shot and a close-up to get the intimate emotion, but also the s- scale and scope of a massive dance scene all in one shot. It's the kind of, uh, I don't think um, In the Heights is nearly as good as West Side Story, but I, I do like it quite a bit. But this one moment is the kind of technical marvel that separates it from other musicals that says, this is what a musical made in 2021 can do that's special and unique and visually different uh and i would rather have this than anything else from in the heights on the moment on really the i actually would uh if i were to vote for one thing from in the heights it would be the paciencia paciencia ife song because i think it was the most visually Is that the uh the uh, grandmother yeah the song? grandmother the yeah. immigrant song within the subway i think it's just the most beautiful visually beautiful I, yeah. and exciting song of the entire production um and it's really emotionally deep and moving as well uh that's the one i would uh choose because it's just the one that stuck out to me the most when i when i watched that film which i really enjoyed too but um it wasn't one of, I, I don't think it's one of my favorite films of the year but yeah that moment for sure i think we should is I would is uh 96 000, is that the one where um it's, it's in, in the, the swimming pool, pool? It's yeah in the pool. yeah okay. yeah i added that one because i think that sequence is spectacular uh kind of similar to what jacob said this is kind of something that you can't do on stage and uh you've never really seen a huge musical number like this use a pool in such 
uh, an incredible way. Like there's dancers moving all around it. The, the camera goes uh, above the pool into the water all around. And like what I really appreciate about it too is like it uses this location in such uh, a masterful way because you really get a sense of like the geography of the entire area and just the way it moves around and how the sequence unfolds around the entire pool area. Uh, and I, this, this to me, I think um, along with the opening sequence was one of the most impressive. Uh, wow. We all have different movies. opinions about the, our favorite sequences. <laughs> oh, geez. What have I done opening this, uh, this I, Pandora's I, box here? I agree with the, with the, I'm not going to try to pronounce it because I'm terrible, but um, the, oh, the great, uh, Ife. Yeah, I, that would be my pick. I was really let down by this movie. I, this is where I reveal I'm, I'm dead inside because I, <laughs> I love the musical. I, you know, the Broadway recording, but I thought this movie was a huge misfire from like beginning to end. Because of those stupid kids, right? Chris? It's just, it's, yeah, well, it's got this really shitty framing device. I don't want to go into the whole thing. I, don't <laughs> I just, I, this movie should have been like great. And I thought it was like really kind of mediocre and a movie like this should not be mediocre but i would definitely go with with the grandmother song if i right. were picking can we song. cut opening song then and, and we'll, we'll narrow down to uh 96 and pcf and the close-up yeah, sure. yeah 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 definitely okay um, so so what do we do move all three of those moments into uh in discussion and save them for yes. later or? I, I think i think i think in, in the interest of keeping this moving i think that's the best point because clearly we're not going to agree on this yet and we'll okay. see we'll see who's worn down we're saving first. it for future us that's okay. a for later <laughs> um the one moment that i want to to uh argue for that i think should be on the list is um from bo burnham inside the song funny feeling um which is just, uh, I mean, Bo Burnham inside, like we could have a whole, I guess, separate conversation about whether or not that actually counts as a movie. I put it on my top 10 list because screw you, it's my list and I'm doing it. So if I get outvoted here uh, on the the grounds of this not being a movie, then that's fine. But if everybody agrees that this is a movie, I think this is the uh, moment from the movie that should make the list, which is Bo Burnham just sort of uh, grabbing an acoustic guitar. And even as like, technically virtuosic as a lot of that uh, special slash movie slash whatever the hell you want to call it uh, actually is the, I think the most um, sort of emotionally gutting uh, one of the most emotionally gutting moments is where it's just a very, very simple shot. um, And he's just sitting there playing an acoustic guitar and just uh, cutting to the core of uh, what it's like to live in a society and uh, right now and, and be on the internet and just be constantly bombarded with nonsensical images all day, every day, and just like trying to keep up with a never ending stream of news and uh, the sort of like uh, helplessness you can feel, but also like uh, quiet beauty and, and sometimes sense of wonder and sometimes little sense of hope that, that comes in there occasionally too. It's just a really um, uh, emotionally gut punching moment that I think is uh, a big standout from uh, a special that I think is incredible. Yeah, I'm I'm okay uh, calling inside a movie for our purposes here. Yes, I'm okay with it too, and especially because you made such an impassioned defense yeah, of this, it. I think you should put it. We should put it on the list. Yeah, when I when I watched this, this was the moment. This was the song that like really knocked me for a loop because it's just it's the perfect summation of how <laughs> just not even just awful, just how fucking weird everything yeah. is how yes. like you know I, I don't subscribe to the belief that we're trapped in a simulation but sometimes i do feel like that and this song really captures that feeling of just like why is everything just so insane all the time yeah. this, this song and it does it in such like a 
like beautiful way that it's it's I, I, it's it's a just a brilliant song like like just even if you remove it from this movie it's just an amazing song yeah all right yeah uh brad any thoughts on on this one uh, so here's where I admit that I haven't taken the time to watch Black wow. yet. I know, and this is for me since I'm such like a comedy nerd too. I feel yeah. I feel shame. I feel ashamed that I haven't gotten around to seeing it. And I, honestly, part of it is because I have heard that it is, even though it's hilarious, that it is kind of like a, a real shock to the system as far as like being kind of depressing and sad. And it's so, hard to watch. Yeah. And so and so every time I think about it, I'm like, do I really want to put this on myself right now? And so I keep putting it off. But I'm I I'm gonna make a point to watch it very soon. I, I just need to so I can so I can make sure that I can put it in the past and have it, it be part of my mind. <laughs> I think it's like almost equally as funny as it is bleak, Brad. So it's not like a completely miserable experience. I right, think you'll right. have a lot of fun with it too. So don't don't let that aspect it, of it. In a, like yeah. a sort of gallows humor kind of way, but it is yeah. there is catharsis. Yeah. Okay. All right, I'm locking it in. All right, I guess I'm next. Oh, goodness. I'm trying to figure out if I should cut something I love, something I don't like. I okay. feel like even... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, uh, Jacob. No. Okay, I want to cut a moment that... Um, did anybody else here see Lamb, the A24 horror movie? I did. I, I have not. Okay, have not. I'm going I'm to spoil the ending of Lamb um, because it's memorable, and I'll, but I don't think it's good. Lamb is a very, very slow burn horror movie about a a, a couple living in the wilderness who find, not wilderness, but on a farm out in the wilds, who discover a uh, lamb human hybrid uh, amongst their flock and they raise it as a child. And it's a slow burn that leads to almost nothing. Like, it's kind of a very boring movie despite its really captivating trailer. And the very, very end, (laughs) the father is out with his lamb child. And he is shot to death by his stolen rifle, which has been stolen by the lamb child's true parent, which is a giant goat man, a giant, like, eight-foot-tall man goat who steals his child back and walks away at the end of the movie. Wait, uh, does the goat, the goat man shoots him? Yes, yes. with a rifle, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right, then. Jacob, I can tell you, this sounds like it should go on the list. Yeah. I like this movie better than you, Jacob. Um, I think it's very – it's actually like surprisingly gentle fable. Not boring, but like it's its different. It's, it's not as much a horror movie as I think its trailer presents it as. I've, I've avoided watching it just because I know there's animal death in it. But and it, I'm well, a wuss and I can't handle that. I think I warned you about it. And it's only one that kind of happens sort of – That's one too many. I know. <laughs> All right. So here's my question. Like, I think this moment is really ridiculous, but it's also been in my brain. Is it worth putting it in discussion at least or instead of cutting it? Yeah. Honestly, the idea of a goat monster with a gun is just hilarious <laughs> to me. So yeah. yes, yeah, it's, okay. It definitely turns the entire movie on its head because the whole movie is just like, oh, this is a nice movie about parenting and also about kind of found family and also this strange lamb child, and then suddenly this devil creature comes out, and you're like, oh, okay, <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm doing it, guys. We're jumping into Spider-Man conversation. Um, oh boy, we have several here. We have Spider-Man No Way Home, two portals open, the Spider-Men together. The final scene, the death of Aunt May. There are two here that I think we can cut. Um, death of Aunt May is an effective scene. It gives Peter the chance to get his great power, great responsibility speech. Giving it to uh, her instead of Uncle Ben uh, works in the context of the MCU's creation of Spider-Man. However, it is still Aunt May getting fridged so a man can learn a lesson. Um, so I, I think for that reason alone, we can cut it. Yeah, I haven't seen this, but... I will just say off, you know, Marissa Tomei deserves better than being a teachable moment character. I'm sorry. She deserves well, I would, but, I, but I will say it's not necessarily her being fridged in the same way that like other female characters have uh, because like it's she's she's being used as, as Ben Parker was, you know, and so like it's not as if there isn't a 
um, a history of the, like this kind of character in Peter's life being used in this fashion. So it, it is unfortunate that like it's a female character this time, but she, she's feeling fulfilling the role of Uncle Ben since Uncle Ben isn't part of Peter's life in this equation. So I don't think it's quite at, like so easy to disregard it because it still is a really good moment, especially because I think this moment in particular is probably Tom Holland's best performance moment since uh, Come On Spider-Man in Spider-Man Homecoming when he's trying to lift the wall off of him. Um, but uh, I mean, yeah, I, I can understand where you're coming from, but I, th- I don't necessarily think it's quite as bad as, you know, normal fridging. That's fair. Do you agree that the other three, the other, there's two here on this list that, that weren't actual like rock solid inclusion to our top 50 though? Yes. Okay. All right. Next one. I think we can cut is the final scene. I put this one on here. This is where, um, it took, only took a bunch of movies, but Spider-Man becomes the Spider-Man I've always wanted to see in the MCU, which is after Peter Parker has saved the universe, but the result uh, has lost all of his connections. Magic has erased his connection to every person he's ever known. We have a Peter Parker without any Avengers allies, without Tony Stark's money, without his family, living in a crappy apartment, no friends, looking for work, um, just completely lonely, completely sad, completely broken. Uh, but yet, duty calls, he's still Spider-Man, and the movie ends with him getting back to work. In and a new suit yeah. that he made himself. Yeah, a new suit, a new suit made. We see, we see the sewing machine and everything. This is a really, really cool moment. But at the same time, I feel it got me really excited because I think if, if Tom Holland plays Spider-Man again, and he probably will based on the money that this movie made, uh, we'll get to see that, that, that the, the Peter Parker I love, which is the Peter Parker who's always getting shit on constantly. Peter Parker, who has Tony Stark money, is not Peter Parker. Peter Parker, who's worried about the rent, wall fight the Green Goblin, that's Peter Parker. Yeah, he's finally uh, no longer Iron Lad. He's Spider-Man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it only took a bunch of movies, but I think this is a really, really cool moment. It got me really excited. But a moment that gets me excited for the future. Um, I don't think it carries as much weight as the two that have me excited in the movie itself. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. Is it bad that I, in in Peter Parker's misery in this moment, I punched the air too? Because I, <laughs> I, was, like, I was so happy to see that Spider-Man that I recognize, the Peter Parker that I recognize, and finally see Tom Holland get to stand on his own without the shadow of, of various mentors or father figures. Yeah, I think you're 100% right. Um, I, okay. All right, so these are the two that I think are really two sides of the same coin. And one of them absolutely has to make the list, and because they're just the moments of blockbuster cinema from last year. Uh, these are two portals open and the Spider-Man together. I'm going to emphasize what these are specifically. Two portals open is when Ned is trying to summon their Peter using the Doctor Strange's sling ring, and he opens one portal, and Andrew Garfield steps through. And I see this in theaters. My audience went nuts, and then Same. he says, "Oh." Then they try to do it again. He tries to find the other Peter, open another portal, and Tobey Maguire steps through. And my audience went insane. It was the most excited I have been in a movie theater since the pandemic because it's a pandemic. You know, it's, you're trying to avoid crowds. You're trying to be careful. And it reminded me, this everybody went crazy. It was such a good feeling. It was a, it was the theatrical moment of the year for me. I had so much fun with this moment. Uh, maybe it's topped though by later on as a Spider-Man or three Spider-Men plan and plot and try to get the Statue of Liberty ready to lay their trap for the villains. They just talk. They just compare notes. Like they, they're grossed up by Tobey Maguire's, you know, organic webbing. They, they, they compare their, their stories. They just, uh, they, they, they adjust Tobey Maguire's back at one point. Andrew Garfield is just super charming the whole time. I don't know if we have room for both of these on the list because they're both two sides of the same coin, but the Spider-Men in general are for me, the big budget, exciting, oh man, the movies are back moment of 2021. We have to have one of these on the list. I have to say, even in my critic screening in New York, where it's full of a bunch of uppity snobs, every, a bunch of people cheered. 
during yeah, the same, summit. Same here at my press screening in Chicago too. And honestly, I uh, I know we have limited spaces. Spider Man No Way Home is such a big movie, and these are two such huge blockbuster moments that I, I genuinely think that they both deserve to be on the list, even though they are kind of two sides of the same coin. They they do two different different things. Two, the first one with the portals opening, it's this great introduction that like brings these characters back into the fray. But then I think that the the second one does so much more with the characters by. Uh, not making them more than than just a gimmick, you know. Like you, they they give you more insight into like what the characters have been doing since we last saw them, and for you know, in some cases, that's nearly twenty years ago. In the case of Tobey Maguire, and the, the way they all interact, both in just in dialogue and then also when they're fighting together, I, I think that's something completely different. I, I feel like we can put both these moments on the list. To be honest, I, I know that we have to be you know, reasonable about this stuff, and like it's it's tough to reconcile that because in some ways, Spider Man is you know making it hard for other movies to stand out, but it's, it, these are two very big deals. I have a suggestion. Um, I also think that these two moments are serve the same purpose in that they are about the other Spider-Man and bringing that together and bring a Spider-Man no way home into the whole legacy of the franchise and looking back at that legacy in a really interesting way. Um, what if we combine the two into just three Spider-Mans, Spider-Men yeah. or the yes. Spider-Man, the Spider-Man. Yeah. Spider's Man. So. Peter's partner. <laughs> I'm okay with the Spider-Man. Um, because that also could also include the scene where P- our, or MCU Peter is grieving and Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire share the, share their stories with him and help him get back on his feet, which is another lovely moment. And the movie's, this movie's full of lovely moments. I know it's the fourth biggest movie of all time. And everybody's writing about it. And it's a Marvel movie. And we shouldn't, and like, sometimes we can get snobby about this because... For a living, we have to focus on this so much. This movie, this movie freaking works. This movie freaking works so damn well. And and I feel like, I've, yeah, I mean, if it's all encompassing, I think that's a good thing too. Because like, I also hesitated to put another Spider-Man moment on here because to me, this is one of the the best moments that involves like the um kind of like the the legacy of the characters, and that's uh you know Andrew Garfield uh saving MJ in this movie. As that would kind be of like one of my a, suggestions too, actually. Yeah, a, a redemption for you know for him after losing Gwen Stacy. Like that was that moment was the one where like you could feel people being like in the theaters like ooh. <laughs> okay, let's let's do the Spider Man. I think if everyone's cool with that because th- we, there are too many moments encompassing these characters, and I think they all have arguments. And whoever writes this blurb on the written version for the site can just like literally say we couldn't pick one here or five or six. So. Yeah, if we have Ben Affleck in the last duel, we can have the Spiders Men. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm gonna lock uh, uh, Ben. Are you okay with this? Yeah, I have from you at all. I have not seen this movie yet, uh, but yes, that this all sounds good to me. Okay, so we'll go, we'll go ahead and cut um, the two portals open and put the Spider Men on the and list. So, and sorry, we had to ruin Spider Man for you, Ben. Oh, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so we're back at the top of the list. Uh, HD. It's time for me to cut and kill something. Let me see. Um. I do, you know, actually, this is a movie that I didn't particularly love, but I think this moment deserves to be on the list. So I would like to lock in the accompanist monologue in Annette. Yes. I I was kind of gobsmacked by this moment. It's sort of a one long take where uh, the character who's, who's played by <laughs> that whose name I can't remember. Simon. Simon Helberg. Yes. Ooh. Simon Helberg. Big Helberg. Bang. Yeah, Simon Big Bang. <laughs> um, gives a whole monologue about uh, his uh, entire, um, you know, history with uh, Marion Cotillard's character uh, while he's conducting uh, an orchestra. And um, 
it's such a fantastic sequence because it basically has him giving this really intense monologue and then he says i have to go back to to conducting and then he gets into this full body conducting performance and then he returns to the monologue and the camera keeps spinning spinning around him it's an excellent performance from simon helberg who i wouldn't give a second thought to having only seen him in uh the big bang theory i think oh i've seen him in other things i think he's been in like walk hard a serious man but i haven't really considered him a really meaty dramatic actor and here he impressed me so much it was just one of the best performance moments of the year for me, I think. And uh, this is a standout moment from Annette for me. I think it's, it's just fantastic. Just a, a great cinema kind of moment. Let's do it. Lock it in, I say. Yeah, we need at least something from Annette on here. Yes. So this is the only thing. This is it. <laughs> do it. Oh, what should I kill? Let's see. Okay. Um, oh, God, there's so many moments that I don't know what to do. Um... Let's see. Let's see. I'm sorry. This is really bad listening. Um, I'm going to kill. You know what? Let's let's go into uh, in in Kanto in Kanto section. We have two two um, moments from here, which is surface pressure, and we don't talk about Bruno. Um, I think we should include one moment from Encanto. I think it should be the biggest song of the year. Uh, and I, while I really enjoy surface pressure, especially as an an older child who, for whom the the song is specifically talking and tailored to me, uh, I think we don't talk about Bruno is is the best song of the movie. And um, Ooh, yeah. HT, whoa, whoa. I, uh, I don't want to fight with you, HT, but uh, I, I can't I can't back this. I cannot back this. <gasps> wow. Okay. If like surface pressure is the best song and the best scene in a movie that made my top ten of the year. Um, not only not only do I think Surface Pressure is a better song, but the way that that, that scene is staged with like the, animation the donkeys and they're incredible. on the they're on the Titanic playing the violins. It's like it's so funny to watch. Like not only is it a good song, it's just a really funny scene to watch. Real Disney stage. Renaissance energy to that scene, like real like the animation little, in yeah. this movie is just so so envelope pushing that it makes it even these 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 songs which are sort of familiar to us having gotten to know Lynn manuel miranda's signature sound make just pop even more it's just like the animation is incredible not in the realistic way but in the actually making use of the animation medium and doing something incredibly clever and imaginative and and just eye dropping eye, eye dropping eye popping um and yeah Surface Pressure does do that. But I love We Don't Talk About Bruno. Oh, I think the song is so good and so catchy. What and, if they um, both made the list? Honestly, I'm fine with that. I'm actually fine with that. Well, I'm doing no rules. killing. <laughs> what do uh, Brad and Ben say? Ben, who hated Encanto. Uh, yeah, as and somebody is who doesn't, <laughs> doesn't like Encanto, I don't think I can stand for two moments being on the <laughs> list. So I think I'm just going to back out of this conversation other than to say, you guys got to pick one and move on because we can't do this. Brad, what do you say? In, uh, uh, surface pressure or we don't talk about Bruno? Gosh. Uh, yeah, because I'm in the middle on Encanto as well. I'm not in love with the music like a lot of people are with this. And um, I do think that the more memorable song is We Don't Talk About Bruno, but I also appreciate um, the style of Surface Pressure and, uh, like Jacob said, the Disney Renaissance feel that it has. Um, it's a tough choice. Uh, I love We Don't Talk About Bruno, though. Like, Yeah, I think... But it does honestly, the thing that was one of my favorite things with musical sequ- uh, songs is that it, it has all those overlapping melodies at the end come together, and I love that. It's just, it just feels so grand and operatic. 
continue. Sorry, Brad, I interrupted you. Yeah, no, no, I think you're right. I and I actually I think that that's why I think it should be we don't talk about Bruno. I think that it's um it's a much bigger moment than surface pressure, even though there is still a lot to appreciate. Um, but Luisa is the best character in Encanto. She she is a great character. She's a great character. So is Bruno. <laughs> yeah, but so is Bruno. Um, and yeah, and I, I I think that it has to be we don't talk about Bruno. How about we throw service pressure in in discussion and put and lock Bruno in? Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, I think I guess Bruno being the pop culture moment that's become like enormous, like for biggest Disney song twenty six years. Yeah, I, it would be weird if we didn't include it. Yeah, guess, we'll, yeah. we'll put service pressure in in discussion, and I'm going to fight for it a little bit later. <laughs> All, right, All right, cool. Wow, I got two on the list. I'm amazing. Okay, <laughs> Chris, you're up. <laughs> um, All right, so. Uh, I, I kind of want to make an addendum here. I did not put this one on here. It's licorice peach of the, the trucks out of gas, but I want this on there. If we can make it pretty much the entire sequence that includes yeah. Riley Cooper. Because- that's exa- that's ex- yeah. yeah, that's ex- that's exactly what I was thinking is, is all of it. Like that basically as soon as they start making their way down the hill and everything that happens until they get to the bottom. Like, yeah, like everything from Bradley Cooper on because Bradley Cooper is only in really one scene and it's this scene. And he's so goddamn funny as as John Peters, who is a real a real person and apparently a real lunatic because he signed off on <laughs> being portrayed this way in this movie. So uh, and it, it just leads to this whole sequence where they're in. It's like um, it's almost like the movie Sorcerer directed by William Friedkin. Have you ever seen that where they're just like driving this truck uh, very perilously and, and the way it's staged is is very thrilling. It's like an action sequence nestled in the middle of this shaggy hangout comedy and it's so well staged and then it, it caps off with bradley cooper returning and smashing windows and then immediately getting distracted when two women in tennis outfits walk by and he, just, <laughs> he just starts hitting uh, on them so i love this I love so this i want like this yeah like if we can make it this entire sequence where they literally go to ins- to install bradley cooper's water bread They'd leave in the truck. They encounter Bradley Cooper again, and it ends with Bradley Cooper walking away and hitting on the tennis ladies. That's what I would push for uh, the licorice pizza moment to be on the list. Yes. Yeah, I, I'd say this is top fifty. We, we, need, we need licorice pizza on this list, and this is this is the one. Okay. Uh, all right. Now I got to cut something. Oh no. Um, we have two different uh, <laughs> Halloween kills moments on here, and I. I like Halloween Kills more than seemingly everyone else, even though I also agree that it's not great and it has some really awful dialogue. Uh, so there are two moments on here. One is it's literally just evil dies tonight over and over again because they say it approximately 800 times in the movie. And then the other is Michael Myers can't stop, won't stop, which I assume is the ending where he he kills everyone. Is indeed, that uh, Indeed it is. <laughs> all right. So between these two, I would vote for that because whatever you think of Halloween Kills, I really think the way that scene is shot where it looks like Michael Myers has been defeated and he just suddenly rises up and murders everyone and it's done in this like strobing effect where the blood is flying everywhere. That's so well well shot and it looks unlike anything else in any other Halloween movie. And I would honestly push for that to be on, uh, to not, I'm, uh, what am I doing? I'm cutting here. So don't cut that cut <laughs> evil dies tonight is what I'm saying. So I, I just because that's not really, a scene. it's yeah. just, it's just characters yelling. evil <laughs> dies tonight. Over yeah, it, is, it is so ridiculous. Yeah. I just love the way that he always gets the crowd worked up. It's like, come on. Yeah. Ah, and everyone instantly agree. Like that's yeah. a good slogan. We're going to go great, with that. A great chance. <laughs> <laughs> so as, as funny as that is, I would say cut that and maybe put, 
Michael Myers can't stop what's up in discussion, maybe, or maybe put it on the list. I don't know. Uh, I, I think in discussion, I think Halloween Kills is a rotten movie. And I don't even like to see as much as you guys do, but I'm okay putting it in discussion for now. Okay. So, yeah. Sorry, I got a little off on a tangent there. No, no. Uh, all good. Uh, Brad, you're up. Okay, I'm going to go through and I'm going to cut several things that I added that I don't think are going to have much support. And if they do, I'll be I'll probably be surprised about it. So um, the first one uh, is we already um, have a Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar moment. So I think that is that one, that one's made the list, right? Yeah? Yes, 100%. Okay. I think that we can cut Trish because even though it is a hilarious reveal and it's something that is set up in the beginning of the movie and pays off so greatly uh, at the end of the movie, I think that Edgar's Prayer is the, the moment that deserves to be on this list among everything else. Trish will always live in our hearts. Yeah. That's, that's true. <laughs> Trish is really great, but the, the right moment's on the list. Yeah. Um, I also think that we can uh, cut this moment from the deep house. Um, it's uh, I think that this is like probably the most shocking moment of, of the movie. And it's a, it's a great bit where uh, the deep house is a movie about uh, this couple who goes um, exploring this house that has somehow been pretty well preserved, even though it's stuck at the bottom of a lake in France. Uh, they're trying to explore it to, as to like a way to build a YouTube channel that gets a bunch of views for exploring scary, weird locations. And after getting into the house that has been sealed up from the outside so that no one can get into it, uh, they go back to the way that they came in only to find out that the window has is completely sealed over with bricks and there is no way for them to get out. Uh, and it's the moment that keeps them trapped there. It's completely shocking because it just comes out of nowhere. And uh, yeah, so even though it's a good moment for that kind of movie, I don't think that it's a moment that's going to make the list. Yeah, I'm glad we talked about this movie because it's such an interesting thing, but it's not going to make the top. It's not going to make the top fifty. Yeah, I really liked the Deep House. I feel like people really slept on that, and for what it is, which is literally a, a underwater haunted house movie, it's pretty damn effective. But yeah, I, I don't no objections to cutting this. Yeah, definitely. If you haven't seen it, you should go see it because it is. Uh, it's very. It's um. It doesn't do anything groundbreaking in terms of haunted house movies, except for setting it underwater, which creates a whole different kind of vibe. And it's super impressive that they actually did film it underwater too. Yeah. Um, another one that I think that, uh, no one's going to argue with this being cut. I, I do feel like there's part of me that thinks it kind of deserves to be on this, but I know that everyone hates this movie so much that it probably won't. And that's the world ending in don't look up. Um, th- this to me, I think is the best part of the movie because Adam McKay fully goes for it and really digs in- into the ending with an emotional scene that actually does, uh, end the world. And I think that like the, the dinner that, um, the characters that we know have, and just this kind of like sitting with the idea that, yeah, the world is about to end. There's nothing we can do about it. Um, it's I, I think it's it's probably the, the most effective part of the movie uh, after having so much satire and just uh, obvious jokes about the way, you know, the media treats what should be urgent situations, stuff like that. Um, I think this one actually, this, the ending actually does work really well. It's very ambitious for Adam McKay to do it. But because it's in a movie that otherwise I feel like doesn't necessarily firmly land as well as uh, we would have hoped that maybe uh, it shouldn't be there. What does everybody else think? I still haven't watched Don't Look Up. Yeah, I've, uh, I've deliberately avoided it. I'll be perfectly honest. So. I you know, watched I, the compilation of Timothy Chalamet scenes on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't I don't hate this scene. And I do think Timothy Chalamet actually uh, does a really good job in this scene because he does that whole like – just like a little prayer thing and i'm as uh agnostic as they come but even like hearing him do that prayer i was like that's pretty good but i also feel like the movie doesn't earn this moment like the, yeah the, every every like as i feel like in a better movie this scene would have been like devastating but everything before it is so 
it's so hacky that I, 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 it's, it's hard for me to. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Okay, so we're cool cutting it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, let's cut it. Um, there's two scenes here that I put on here, and I feel like neither of them will have the support to add on. Um, and it, these are the, these two different uh, action sequences from Godzilla versus Kong. Uh, one of them being the Tokyo fight, which is neon soaked and awesome, with uh, Kong and Godzilla fighting each other. Um, the fact that Kong uses, you know, a, a, a lightning tower spire to, um, you know, fight and all this kind of stuff. It's it's a great sequence. Uh, it's it's visually impressive as well. I don't think it's going to make the list. Anybody else disagree? Tokyo Fight makes my list. It does? Yes. I would it, like to put Tokyo Fight in, in discussion. We can cut Mechagodzilla, though. Okay, I think that's fair. I mean... Tokyo Fight does involve Godzilla blasting his fire breath into the center of the earth, which is pretty yes, cool. So. Exactly. <laughs> okay, I wasn't sure if, if Godzilla vs. Kong was going to have any any support, so that's that's cool. I honestly forgot that came out last year. That's kind of <laughs> <laughs> uh, what was the other one that I was going... There was one more. Um... Muncher, oh. muncher, muncher. <laughs> you know, you know what? Yeah, actually, you know what? Let's go ahead and dig into Ghostbusters Afterlife. <laughs> oh, Brad, let's do it. It's, uh, this, this is tough because I mean, I, uh, I wanted to love this movie so much. Um, I, I think a lot of maybe maybe a lot of readers are going to think that a ghostly reunion is going to be the one of the two moments that we have on this list um, because it brings back Egon Spengler, albeit in a literally ghoulish way, but it does bring back the entire team, and it's meant to be this big moment. I personally didn't like it. It didn't work for me, but it it is a big moment that a lot of people did love. Uh, For me, I think the best part of the sequence, honestly, uh, or the movie, is the Muncher chase, uh, because it it brings back some of the spirit of the original Ghostbusters uh, by having this ghost who's like Slimer, um, but it also... Uh, amps it up to, in, a, in a way that is on the level of an Amblin movie because it has the kids uh, chasing Muncher in the Ecto-1, using the gunner seat, uh, tearing through town. Uh, there's a lot of cool moments throughout it. I think it's the most effective scene in the entire movie. Uh, so what do you guys think about these two Ghostbusters Afterlife scenes? I, think, I have not actually yeah. seen this yet. So. I haven't either. I, I was about to say, I haven't, Brad, you're the only one. And oh, as, as, a, as a resident Ghostbusters expert, the fact that you were not won over by Ghostly Reunion with all the Ghostbusters back together means that we should instantly cut this one. But if you think Muncher Chase belongs in the top 50, as the biggest Ghostbusters fan I know, I will back it. Also, I think Muncher has a particularly uh, uh, personal interest to Slash Film. Having, yeah, everybody you know, loves broke, Muncher. Yeah, well, having, we, ha- we broke the, the Muncher look and we went viral for a little bit because of Muncher. So I guess we have, you know, we owe a little bit to Muncher. <laughs> yeah, I, I think we should go with the Muncher chase then, yeah, because I'm, it's, this, this has to have our tastes on it. And even though I know a lot of people did, uh, you know, feel moved by the, the Ghostbusters reunion, bringing Egon Spengler back as, as a ghost, it didn't work for me. And so, yeah, let's put the Muncher chase on there. Yeah, let's put it in. All right, next in the list is Ben. Okay, so there's a moment from The Rescue, the documentary that I think is now available on Disney+, Plus, uh, where it's sort of like the big reveal of the movie. So The Rescue is about, uh, it's from the same filmmakers that did Free Solo, and it's about the Thai cave rescue, where like, I think, I don't remember exactly how many, 13 or so um, Thai uh, boys, like 12-year-olds, teenagers, early teenagers, uh, were essentially trapped inside a huge um, cave in Thailand where... uh, flood waters rose and they were in there for a long time and the government tried to get them out and they 
ended up not having not being equipped to do it like they tried to bring in the thai navy and they didn't really know what they were doing because it was so specialized like the uh, tracks that they had to move and the, the techniques that they had to use in order to get these kids out so they ended up calling in these like british cave divers who just are sort of hobbyists but they're like the best in the world at what they do basically uh and these guys are actually specialists and through a long series of events that the movie gets into they ultimately find these kids but they realize that the only way that they have to get them out of the cave is for them to actually like drug them uh like i don't remember what the the drug actually is but it's the equivalent of putting them under anesthesia and then like zipping them up in a, a suit and putting them under the water and trying to swim, you know, miles out of this cave with them. And, you know, you see all of the, we, you probably remember if you're listening to this, all of the news coverage that happened around this time of like, Oh, wow, this is, you know, everybody came together and they succeeded in getting these kids out of the cave, which is like an awesome sort of awe-inspiring moment for humanity, but I didn't certainly know the specifics of actually how that was accomplished. And to be watching this footage, uh, some of which was actually captured in the cave in the moment, some of which is, is like really impressive looking recreations. Um, it, I was just sort of like blown away that they this was the technique that was used to actually save these kids' lives. Uh, Chris, I know you've seen this as well. Did this moment like land on you too? Yeah, because I, I, I had heard of the cave rescue and all that stuff, but I did not know this was how they went about doing it. And I was like, this is freaking crazy. So yeah, I, yeah. I, would, I would say this should be on there. I was going to say that it could be cut because I just don't know if it's going to have enough support here, but I wanted to highlight it because it's like a really cool moment in the movie. But Chris, if you think it should go in discussion, then maybe we should put it in there. But uh, I don't I don't know. Do we have like, um, I don't know. It'd be nice to have at least one documentary on the list. We don't yeah, I was about else. to say, I, I, I'm pro putting this one in, in discussion. Except for the documentary Annette. But, uh, <laughs> we, have, well, we haven't talked about Flea yet. And I do think that moment in Flea oh, yeah, that's right. incredible. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think that's the one. If we're gonna, if we're gonna, if we're gonna limit it to one documentary moment. No, we're, we're not gonna limit to the. Do, one. I'm, put, I'm putting the rescue in. Only in discussion. one documentary we're, allowed. <laughs> we're not. We're not. We're not cutting the rescue yet. I, I refuse. Okay. Uh, well, um, that was going to be my cut. So let me let me argue for the thing that I actually care about here, which is uh, the harder they fall. Which this was like my number one movie of the year. I love this movie so much. Um, there are two moments on the list. There's a bank robbery in Maysville and breaking uh, breaking Idris Elba out of the train. Um, Brad, did you put the bank robbery in Maysville on this list? Yes, I did. Okay. So why don't you tell people what that moment is? Yeah. So um, in the harder they fall. Uh, the, um, one of the gangs led by Jonathan Majors, uh, needs to pull off, um, a bank robbery and it's in, uh, Maysville, which is a very white town. And because, uh, pretty much all of the main characters in the movie are black, you immediately just think, oh, it just must be a town populated by white people for the most part. But when you get to Maysville, it is literally a white town. Everything is painted white. Everything looks bright and white. And the only thing that is any color are uh, the white people who are wearing colorful clothes. Um, then the sequence itself is also just a great bank robbery sequence. Um, and I just appreciated the, uh, the that visual um, of having this purely white town uh, and having this this uh, outlaw gang come into it and completely disrupted by by robbing the bank. Yeah, it's a really good like representation of this movie as a whole, which is like about uh, black people in a western, which is. Uh, uh, 
a specific genre that black people have um, often been excluded from historically. Uh, so yeah, I, I like the visual there. For me though, the breaking Idris Elba out, out of the train moment is is the the better moment of the movie because it's it combines staples of the Western genre, which are like a, a train holdup and then also a jailbreak into the same moment. And you get the reveal of Idris Elba for the first time in the film. So he is like literally kept in chains, standing up in a full-size human-size safe where uh, the the his gang members come on board this train and they break him out. And there's a, a moment that I missed the first time around. And I was rewatching the scene to prepare for this podcast. And there's this moment right after he is finally, uh, you know, he steps out and it's just this really awesome moment that it's the framing is really great. And he steps out and he takes this breath of freedom and the image warps around him a little bit. It's almost like in, um, in the first matrix when Neo realizes that he's the one and, uh, the hallway sort of like bends and, and warps around him and, and sort of shakes out a little bit. It's kind of like that. And it's this really subtle moment, but it's this moment of this guy. Um, you that's know, just happened. That's just what happens anytime Idris Elba enters. Around. He's just, <laughs> yeah. he's just so handsome. Feels, and- like he's so goddamn cool. Uh, yeah. That, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a really, really cool moment. I was going to, you know, suggest that the scene, uh, make the cut anyway before I even notice that little thing, but it's just like icing on top of the cake. So um, just the, yeah, like the sort of uh, confluence of um, the way that the the writer director, James Samuel uh, uh, sort of put his own unique spin, his sort of like modernized uh, spin on um, combining these two Western tropes. I thought was a really cool moment. I'm uh, Ben has convinced me that I think that the other moment deserves to be on the list. If, if we're going to put a moment from the heart of they fall on the list. I don't know. Does does anybody else uh, have you guys seen this? Have you caught up this movie? And do you think it belongs here? I have. I mean, I think you made a pretty good case for that that scene, Ben. I do think this is a pretty cool movie. It's 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 not like a great film, but it's 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 stylish as hell, and everyone in the movie just looks like impossibly cool. It's a very cool movie, so I, I wouldn't object to anything on there being on the list. I'm fine with having that moment, Ben. Um, I yeah, I have not seen this yet, but um, I think we should have a moment from your favorite movie of the year. <laughs> yeah, agreed. Uh, so, Ben, which which one do you want to lock in? Remind me. Let's do breaking Idris Elba out of the train. All right, and should we put the other one in, in discussion, or do you think it's okay to cut it? I think, I think okay. we can. Cut yeah, it's okay it, to right? cut it. Yeah. Yeah. All right, I am cutting it. All right, did you, did you, I forget, did you cut one as well, Ben, or was that just a keep? Um, I think the one that I was going to cut got put in discussion, so we can just move on to oh, the next right, person. Right. All right, which is me. Okay. Um, I want to cut both scenes from Candyman. I put them on here. I want to mention Candyman because I think it's an extremely well-directed movie. It has tone. has great tone. has so much style. Yeah, I'll be able to in a second. It's so good in it. Like, really, a guy punches above his weight class no matter what he's in. And I have two shots on here, two moments on here that I want to at least recount. The long-distance kill, which is a... Uh, a slasher scene shot from essentially uh, what feels like a drone helicopter shot outside of an apartment window looking through from a wide distance. You see somebody get <laughs> brutally killed. It's a really neat moment, but we can cut it. And Yael Abdul-Mateen learns the truth, which is where uh, how this Candyman remake is revealed to be a, a secret sequel late in the movie and a scene with his mother. A really well-acted tense scene, uh, but I don't think either of them make the top 50. Uh, Chris, what do you think about these? Uh, yeah, I, I, I agree with cutting them, but I do think Candyman was a lot better than a lot of people made it out to be. And that, that, that kill through the window in particular is, was like, Oh, this is really cool. looking. I mean, not, I, it's probably the wrong word to use. Yeah. It's cool that this person's getting killed, but you know what I mean? It was just really well, <laughs> really well shot. The movie in general is just 
incredibly well directed. It just looks fantastic. All right. Well, with that gone, let's move on to the tragedy of Macbeth. I have three moments from this movie on my list. I'm sorry, on, on the list. Uh, this made my top 10 of the year. I don't think it made anybody else's top 10 of the year on the site, which surprised me considering that we had a very positive review of it. Um, it was in my top 20. Yeah, it's like in my top like 50, I would say. All right. So I have three moments on here. The dagger of the mind soliloquy. Something wicked this way comes. And Macbeth kills Seward. Um I'm going to explain why I like all three of these scenes. I want to have all of you guys chime in on which ones you think um, we should keep in discussion or, or, or you know, whatever. Dagger of the Mind is the famous, very famous soliloquy where uh, Macbeth, played by Hubert Denzel Washington, uh, walks toward the king's room, planning to murder him. And he's describing the uh, dagger of the mind, a, 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 a hallucinatory dagger pointing him toward the room. And I've so often seen this soliloquy uh, performed as a guy on the edge of madness, whereas Dr. Watson really underperforms it. He really does it as a guy who's low-key, determined, like talking himself up, like really convinced this is the right thing to do. And it ends it ends up meaning that when he does fall to madness in the back half of the movie, uh, you're watching this really together guy fall apart as opposed to a guy who's a raving madman from the beginning. It's such a unique take on a really classic Shakespeare moment I think deserves notice. Uh Similarly, something wicked this way comes. This is Macbeth's second meeting with the Weird Sisters, played here by a single actress. Is it, is it Catherine Hunter? Am I, is that her name? Yes, that's yes, right. Catherine Hunter. Uh, uh, she, she's playing all three witches, in, which is an incredible performance. Her, her and Denzel Washington are aces together. And this is a scene where they give Macbeth a second series of visions, and it's written for them to you know put things into a, into a cauldron. You know, say something wicked this way comes, double double boil in trouble. All the all the the famous Shakespeare lines that have been like taken out of context and quoted in pop culture. And the scene could have been silly, you know, three witches around a cauldron, but instead it's one actress playing one witch with weird shadow versions of herself, sort of hanging out near the ceiling, transforming the entire room into this sort of nightmare swimming pool tossing things at Macbeth's feet into the water and a, a face appearing in the in the water, speaking to him with his visions. It is one of the most... In, in, a, in a movie that reinvents all of Macbeth is this German expressionist black and white horror movie. This is by far the freakiest moment uh, for me, and it's the one that swings the hardest to make sure that nobody's chuckling at the very, very familiar uh, Shakespeare dialogue. Uh, it just sort of it does not let you... You say, oh, yeah, I know that line. It just keeps you fully involved in the moment in the storyline. And it's just a really tremendous moment. Uh, And finally, Macbeth kills Seward. This is Macbeth sitting on his throne. Uh, Macduff's forces have invaded uh, his castle. He's losing. And Seward, he's he's one of the heads of the British forces, uh, arrives in his throne room. And Macbeth's been told that uh, no man born of a woman can defeat him. So Macbeth just says, oh, were you born of a woman? <laughs> and he's like, of course you were. And he ends up having a fight scene with him. Where Macbeth is just 65-year-old Dunzel Washington, just casually dodging this guy's like aggressive attacks, just like looking like, I can't die. Why are you even here? And then Macbeth just kills the crap out of him. Uh, meanwhile, the throne room transforms into the woods around him, uh, replicating the idea of the woods closing in as part of the vision. Uh, it's just really smart, great filmmaking. That An action scene... And a Shakespeare adaptation shouldn't be this fun, shouldn't be this dynamically filmed, shouldn't be this darkly funny. Uh, I think what I would put, I can I can cut Dagger of the Mind, but these these bottom two belong really in conversation for the top fifty. I am in agreement about uh, 
Catherine Hunter as the three, which I love the something we get this way comes monologue and that whole scene because I particularly love Catherine Hunter as the three witches um, and that choice to cast the one actress as her. And she gives this almost feral performance, often crouching, um, and the way that she sometimes appears as one before her shadow casts two others. Uh, I love her performance. Even though I think Denzel runs away with this movie, Catherine Hunter gives this really eerie, really, just, yeah, feral performance as a three She's witches. got that BGE, that big golem the energy. Big golem energy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so that one, I, I think I lean towards that one a lot, but I do really love the added texture of Denzel Washington's sort of age and his, uh, his almost wrath and um fear like lack of lack of fear of mortality in that fight scene with seward i think that one is is excellent too but i'm probably leaning towards Catherine hunter uh i will i will be okay with having both of those two tragedy of macbeth moments something wicked this way comes and macbeth kills seward i think i'm i can cut jack off the mind but um i'm you know i'm, I'm leaning towards the, the latter two I'll cut back of the mind. Um, I feel I feel like no one else has stepped up for it yet, even with a really good scene. Um, Chris, do you have an opinion on either of these scenes? I mean, all all of these are are, are very good. Um, it's really tough. It's because I don't know. I, all I can say about this movie is that the real tragedy is that Denzel Washington has not done more Shakespeare movies because, goddamn. Uh, he, you know, I know he he did uh, much to do about nothing that movie, and he's done a bunch of Shakespeare on stage, but he delivers Shakespearean dialogue in ways like I've never really heard before. He makes it sound new, and that's like that's really impressive because Shakespeare has been around for a very long time, and the the idea that an actor could come along and deliver lines you've heard billions of times and out of out of context and and deliver them in a way that makes them sound like they're being said for the first time is a very difficult thing to do. And that, you know, I, I um, so I don't know, maybe I am leaning more towards the dagger thing here, but uh, I'm, I'm no help in this situation. I'm sorry. I've, I bought, I, I botched this terribly, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> Jacob, I, say, I, think, I think you should put something wicked this way comes on the list and then either cut or, or put Macbeth kills Seward into in discussion. I think that works. I like that. I, I just, I just watching this movie reminds me that Denzel Washington for every time he's doing you know, equalized movie we don't care about like still one of the best actors of all time I mean whether he's delivering Shakespearean dialogue or in a fight scene with a guy where his physicality is telling so much story that can't even be told by the Shakespearean dialogue man what an actor what what a movie okay he's so good right we're back to the top HD Okay. Well, I'm going to, speaking of documentaries and things that may or may not be movies, let's talk about The Beatles Get Back. Uh, we have two moments here from The Beatles Get Back. I think I pulled, I, I think I put both of them here. Um, first one is Paul McCartney pulls Get Back from the ether. And this is the moment in the first episode of the Disney Plus documentary directed by Peter Jackson, uh, which reuses the footage directed by Michael Lindsay Hoggs and that originally became the film 1970 film let it be um and now is repurposed into an eight hour documentary you can say series but for the purposes of this list since we're doing movie moments documentary monstrosity 
<laughs> um, uh, called Get Back. And I absolutely love Get Back. It was one of my favorite movies of the year. And I think it's just a nice, a, a fascinating ode to guys being dudes and the pitfalls of fame um, and the interesting balance between genius and collaboration uh, and creative creativity and collaboration. Anyways, the moment that has been much talked about and probably most talked about from The Beatles Get Back is the moment where Paul McCartney is just noodling around on his guitar. Um, he's trying to find a new song for their live album and John Lennon is late as he always is. And um, he's just like playing a bunch of random notes, playing a bunch of random chords and singing some nonsense words. Uh, and after three minutes of this, uh, in which Ringo and uh, George are just both sitting there yawning, he starts to sing Get Back. And it's amazing to see him pull this song, which would be their next single, out of the ether. And it's basically fully formed. The other funny thing is that when he starts singing it, um, a little credit uh, pops up saying get back by Lennon McCartney and Lennon is nowhere to be seen. <laughs> um, what a, what an amazing little display of genius at work uh, when creativity just kind of that spark just happens and you see it happening before your eyes. And it's, I think a testament to um, Paul, uh, Peter Jackson's um, approach to this, which is just very much almost like a nature document, just watching it as it happens. It's very unedited, very just um, uh, fly on the wall type of, of editing, I guess. It's not even filmmaking. Um, and I I think this moment is just fantastic. Uh, the other moment is the rooftop concert. And this one I'm actually okay with cutting, even though I think it's the big emotional climax and a narrative climax of this movie. And it's so, so fun to see. Um, but I'm fine with cutting it because we have seen this rooftop concert before, albeit in a much more truncated fashion in the original Let It Be film. And it's very familiar to people. People know what it is, although I, it was my first time seeing it in the full and it was amazing to see in this documentary and seeing uh, the way that Peter Jackson lays it out by having the people on the streets kind of intercut with the concert. And the concert is just them playing basically four songs over and over again. Uh, and the moment where, where Paul McCartney um, is playing... Uh, I forgot what song they were playing, but he, they're playing and he sees the cops uh, come onto the rooftop and he looks back and he just lets a, a little joyful whoop because that's what he wanted. He wanted to play at Parliament and get kicked up by by the cops. And here he gets that moment um, in the rooftop and he's just really excited to see the cops interrupt their, their concert. Uh, wow, I just talked myself out of cutting it. Anyways. Uh, HD, um, I'll jump in here and say that the rooftop concert is so famous and so seen that the McCartney pulling get back from the ether should be on the top 50, I think, because we haven't seen that before. That's a unique, special thing. Yeah. Yes. That's what originally I was going for before I got really excited about <laughs> Paul McCartney seeing the cops. Yes. Anyways, let's keep Paul McCartney pulls get back out of the ether and cut the rooftop concert. Anyone have any objections to that? Nope. Uh, nope. I agree. Okay. Agree. Uh, the Google Docs being weird. Give me a second. Oh, no, no, no. It's not, it's, it's not letting back. me select everything. Can somebody um, move, uh, get back up to the I top? I can and, do and, it. And it's not letting me select the whole thing. I'm not sure why. Yeah, I can do it. And Chris can go next. Chris, hello. Oh, I'm here. I was just uh, preparing myself. Oh, man. 
So uh, there are three many Saints of Newark moments on the list. I really like this movie, even though it got kind of mixed reviews. I also feel like we could probably cut all three of these. Ooh. Um, I know. I'm sorry. I'm, tr- I'm trying to help, Jacob. I'm trying to help. Please don't shoot the messenger. Um, uh, so there, good, this is a, a really good movie, I think. Um, the, the, the three things on the list are the final shot, which is uh, the young Tony Soprano looking at his, his dead uncle, quote unquote uncle. It's not really his uncle, but they call him his uncle. Uh, and sort of um, uh, just silently mulling it over. And earlier in the movie, they do this thing where when he was a kid, they used to do it like this pinky promise thing. And Tony imagines that uh, the dead uncle played by uh, Alessandro Nivola reaches his dead hand up and they do a little final pinky promise together. Great moment. Another great moment. The graveyard, which is the opening of the moment, opening of the movie, which suggests that dead people are just like hanging out in their graves, rambling about their life story and no one can hear it, which is like a when you start to like dissect that, it's just unsettling and kind of like disturbing that like this is what the afterlife is. It's literally just you at your grave talking to no one. Um, and then automotive torture, which is literally what it sounds like, where they're using auto tools to, to torture a man. Uh, again, I think this, these are good scenes, uh, but I don't think any of them probably would make the list. So I'm fine cutting all three of them. Can we, we can cut automotive torture for sure. Um, the graveyard scene, it's so odd because people, a lot of people remember The Sopranos as being like the automotive torture scene, which is as violent, you know, gnarly crime show. People sometimes don't remember that The Sopranos was, was weird. It was a weird show full of weird diversions and weird ideas. And this opening shot where it pans through the graveyard, every gra- every gravestone the camera passes, you hear the, the dead person's monologuing about their life, is so in tune with The Sopranos was. Uh, so, so I wanted to put it on here for that reason. But I wanted to at least put the final shot into in discussion because it's it Tony Soprano, young Tony Soprano is trying, is trying to be a better person until his uncle dies. And it's just the origin story of him looking at his dead uncle and then the finger, the pinky appearing in frame, him taking it as the Sopranos theme kicks in the background. It's such a haunting moment because Tony Soprano could have gotten out. He could, he could have not been the man we see on on Sopranos. And this moment dooms him. This is a moment that dooms him to everything we see in the show. Uh, and it really sent chills down my spine. I don't want to cut it yet. I want to put it in discussion if that's okay. That's fine. Yeah, I, I'm. Yeah, I have no objections. Uh, oh boy. So I got to pick one to stay, though, right? Yep. Everyone's everyone's being very quiet. I feel like I'm like the <laughs> only one here. Um. All right, then I'm going to go with uh, Saint Maud, the final scene of Saint Maud, which. Uh, is is just an all timer. It's a it's a stunner. It's I, I saw it like two years ago at Fantastic Fest when it finally got released, and that final moment just really stayed with me. Saint Maud is about this young woman who uh, is very religiously devout, and it's also clear that she's mentally unstable, and she's just obsessed with martyrdom and and uh, you know uh, flagellating herself to to be closer to God and. Uh, very disturbing stuff. And at the end of the movie, she has it in her head that she can basically like douse herself with gasoline and sort of transcend into this, this holy figure. And we see her go stand on a beach and people are standing around her and they're watching her cover herself in gasoline. And they're all alarmed. 
and she has a lighter and there's a moment where it looks like, oh, she was right. And we see like the flames don't actually hurt her. And it looks like she's becoming this fiery angel and she has this look of bliss on her face. And then there's a, like a smash cut that reveals like that's all in her head. And she's just burning horribly to death and screaming in pain. And then it immediately cuts to black. And it's such like a, <laughs> a shocking, like, holy shit moment that I would honestly love for this to be on the list because I really feel like a 24 botched the release of this movie. Cause they, they didn't want to put it direct to streaming. They kept delaying it because of the pandemic. And eventually they dumped it on like direct TV. And it's like, who the hell has direct TV? Get out of here. I think it's like streaming somewhere now, but I feel like they did such a shitty job releasing this that a lot of people did not even see this movie. And uh, my, my solution to that is to spoil the movie for everyone by putting the final scene <laughs> on this list. But uh, I, I feel like that final scene is, is like the hook. It's like the thing that ties everything together and reveals what this movie was building towards. And it's such a shocking scary moment and uh i would love for this to be on the list somewhere people have been talking about this ending since fantastic fest uh i remember when the movie aired at the festivals years ago literally years ago people were buzzing about this ending and then the movie got botched as chris said so uh this has been the thing this movie people have been talking about for literally years so yes i think it's top 50 i agree (laughs) no objection locking it in okay moving on uh, <laughs> so, next so that's th- number 30, Jacob, just as a quick check in. Yeah. So that's 30 things locked in. So we have what, 20 more, uh, 20 more, right? Yeah. So we, we, get, we still got, we still, we still got to kill a whole bunch on this main list. So we have the indiscussion to go through. So, okay. Oh, boy. All right. Uh, Brad, let's kill some and save some. Oh, okay. Let's see what we got here now. Um, so let's do last night in Soho I actually just watched this last night I was finally doing some uh, some catch-up I had missed it and uh, it was available to to rent finally since I missed it in theaters uh, and I think one of these moments belongs on the list probably and maybe the other one doesn't and for me I think the one that belongs on the list uh, is Thomas and Mackenzie goes back to the 60s for the first time uh, this is the the first sequence where her character uh, being in fashion school in London uh, and staying in a new apartment uh, in in Soho uh, realizes that she somehow is able to go back in time to the 60s and is kind of embodying um the uh a a woman named alexandra she goes by sandy played by anya taylor joy uh as she is experiencing this moment in her life where she's trying to be a singer and she meets this alluring man played by matt smith and the sequence when she goes back in time uh it's just gorgeously shot and it does this amazing thing where it seamlessly goes back and forth between uh, Thomas and Mackenzie um, in her pajamas, uh, mirroring Anya Taylor-Joy in this uh, fancy um, 60s kind of of gown uh, as she moves around, uh, walks upstairs, dances, and it uses mirrors that are situated throughout um, the the, theater in London, uh, a massive theater, where uh, you go back and forth between seeing Thomas and Mackenzie and Anya Taylor Joy in the same position, mirroring each other as they as they move around, uh, including this incredibly shot dance sequence that goes back and forth between showing each of the actresses um, in this in the same position. Uh, it's just masterfully shot and edited, uh, and it's an absolutely beautiful sequence that really brings you right back into the '60s. Uh, and then the other one is actually the ending of the movie, where um, the the big twist has been. 
uh, revealed. And as Thomas and Mackenzie is trying to fight for her life, the the house um, that she's been staying in, in an apartment is on fire and uh, all of the, the ghosts and um, the, the embodiment of Anya Taylor joys character and everything are appearing and things are just getting weird and fragmented and terrifying. Uh, and even though it's uh, it's a pretty good uh, ghostly sequence, I think that it's that first scene that belongs on the list. Yeah, we can cut the second one. I put the second one on there because I think the cross cutting between the house on fire with the modern day characters and the sort of, effortlessly cutting to this sort of nightmarish surreal dream sequence where time has, has sort of stopped mattering is really effective. But I do think that the movie is summed up better by that first scene. Yeah, I agree. That should be on there. Hey, Chris, you're a fan of the scene too. I think you put this one on the list, didn't you? Which I put the, the, yeah, the back in time yeah. sequence. Cause I, I, I think I like this movie. I think it's a little, Muddle. I feel like Edgar Wright doesn't understand what he wants to say about Andrew Taylor Joy's character in this movie. So I feel like the ending kind of falls apart. But that first moment where she goes back in time and he, he follows her down the alley and she steps out in the street and it's it's just top notch filmmaking. So yeah, I support that. All right. Uh, so, 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 we're on, we're, I think we're in for top fifty for this one. HD. Did you ever see this? I haven't because I was supposed to go see it in theaters and then uh, Omicron hit. And then, you know, uh, I did just end up not seeing it. Uh, do you have any sad. objections to this being on the list, though? I have no objections because I've seen some of the behind the scenes uh, of the scene and how they pulled it off. And it's incredible, both choreography wise and editing wise. I think it's just a, one of those great smoke and mirrors. Filmmaking is cool kind of moments. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Cool. Um, Brad, was that, was that, that was your choice to keep, right? Uh, yes. Uh, kill something then. Uh, well, we did kill the other last night and oh. thing, but I can kill something else if you want. Let's, let's, let's keep it going. Let's, let's, let's destroy this. Okay. Kill this list. Um, so, well, this this may be actually be this can probably maybe double as a as a keep and kill thing as well, because um, I think that one might actually be more of a bigger moment than the other one. Uh, and so I put two moments from Derek Delgadio's uh, in and of itself. Uh, in this thing, um, this is something that people probably forgot came out at the beginning of 2021. I thought for sure it's the 2020 movie. But I looked it up January 2021. Yeah, I, I, I had the same thought, and once I saw that, I was like, "Oh yeah, we like." I mean, we have to put this on here because we were we were talking about this a lot when it first came out. And uh, I put two scenes on here. One of them is uh, the I Am sequence, which is uh, part of this show where Derek Delgado, um he puts um, puts on this uh, one man show that mixes. Uh, magic and very personal storytelling. Um, and one of the things that he does is before the show, he has uh, everyone in his audience pick from a big wall of cards uh, that say I am. And then it uh, has some kind of descriptor, whether it's their their job, something from their their, their personality, their, uh, their place in life, what have you. Uh, and they go into the show and have the show. And then at the very end of the show, uh, Derek goes through and uh, correctly guesses which card every single person in the audience picked. Um, it is a very impressive uh, trick. It's shocking and it's it's wild to see him go through a variety of audiences and pick the correct answer uh, for each one. But I, however, I think that the more moving and powerful and mystifying moment comes uh, when he has uh, a member of uh, in his audience read a letter that um, 
there's no possible way it could have been been there and written by somebody that someone in the audience knew. But when this letter that is on stage is given to this person, it is somehow somehow comes from the person that they were thinking of and it brings them to absolute tears and it just totally shatters you. You never know what's in the letter. You never know anything like that. But it's that emotional reaction that they get that shows you that this is something that was truly magical and and worked and made people feel something that they weren't weren't expecting and it's 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 a marvel to actually watch even when you're not there uh in the crowd especially because you see that it happened multiple times uh during every performance of of the show when it was live on stage I'm really torn. These are both kind of remarkable scenes, and I, I feel like we should have one of them on the list because this was the thing that I think Slasher was obsessed with for a few weeks a lot of this time last year. Yeah, it's like it, it didn't really linger in my mind, you know, a year later, but I do remember us all being very impressed by it, you know, on first watch. Um, so, like, how do I value that versus, uh, you know, some of this other stuff that maybe has like lingered a little bit more? I. I don't know. I'm having trouble deciding uh, on this one. Maybe we put them both in discussion for now and we'll see I how mean, things shake out. I personally would vote for the letter scene just because I feel like the IM scene goes on way too long. Yeah, like, as as impressive as it is, I was like, all right, I get it. <laughs> like, by like the by like the eight hundredth person, he was, I was like, "All right, I get it, Derek Delgadio." But the the reading the letters thing like knocked my ass out. I was just like, "Holy shit!" I'm crying a lot at this scene. So between those two, that's the one I would pick. I'm okay with the letters. Let's do the letters. Let's, 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 I think so. We lock letters in, cut. I am, and we and we move on from this one. Yeah, yeah. sounds good. All right. So that was Brad uh, Ben. I believe you are next. Okay, let's cut uh, Come On, Come On from the movie Come On, Come On. <laughs> I don't think, what is this even? Uh, I have no idea. I didn't really care for thing? Come On, Come On that oh, much. Really? So, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. I really liked wonderful. it. Oh. Yeah. I think yeah, it's the- referring to the little sort of monologue that uh, the young boy who, Woody something, right, uh, that he gives um, at, in to the to Joaquin Phoenix's recorder, yeah. and he's talking about the future and how you kind of want the future to come on, come on, come on, come on. I think it's a really lovely moment. Um, I'm fine with cutting it, but I think come on, come on, it's just a really gentle and loving, lovely film that uh, doesn't have like you know big, big standout moments. But uh, I still really love it. Love it. Yeah, I thought I, I think that this moment was worth at least uh, mentioning, just because I I, I wasn't like. Um, absolutely like in love with this movie uh but this moment like kind of just brought it together and it like it it all of a sudden like made me feel something for it because it's um it's this kid speaking into walking phoenix's recorder walking phoenix is this documentarian he's been going around uh getting perspectives on on life and their parents and things like that with these these adolescent kids um and just getting their honest take on just the world around them um and his his nephew has taken his recorder at some point um it's seemingly without him knowing and like he's talking into it and it's just this very insightful thing that's like this it's to inspiring to come from this kid is that like all these things happen to you but you have to just come on come on come on like push forward like 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 go move move through it live live your life kind of thing um and it just was very as simple as it is it just it just felt very uh very insightful to me coming from uh, a kid a precocious kid character like that um and like like, mouths of babes kind of wisdom yeah exactly okay well it sounds like you guys gave it its moment um 
So <laughs> shut up, Ben. <laughs> yeah, not a fan, but th- this is not the uh, the arena for me to try to take this movie down anyway. So let's just move on. Should we, should we put should we put it in discussion then? I'm fine with cutting yeah. it. I think it's a lot. Yeah, we got to yeah, there's, 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 really cut there's, there's a lot. There's a lot of bigger uh, and better stuff in here, but that that's the scene and I think the movie is is pretty great. Okay. It's gone. Okay. So the one thing that I want to argue for here is uh, the audition scene from Coda. Um, Coda is one of my favorite movies of the year. And the audition is where it's like the, the emotional linchpin of the movie that comes at the very end of the film. The main character is a child of deaf adults, which is what Coda stands for. Um, and she uh, is, a, is an aspiring singer. And some of the, the tragedy and heartbreak of this movie is that her brother and parents can't hear. And so they, they don't understand. They can't understand uh, the gift that she has, and and they literally like can't can't hear her sing, which is kind of like this. Um, you know, it's not something that I've ever really seen depicted in a movie before. Um, I think you know people uh, with with uh, like deaf deaf characters and things like that seem to be having a little bit of a moment on screen um, right now, especially with across film and TV with um, things like Drive My Car and Hawkeye and and Coda. And I, I love seeing this. It's it's such a cool um, perspective that I haven't really seen a lot on on uh, film before but anyway the audition scene at the very end of coda is like the the main character goes to audition to be in i forget if it's juilliard or berkeley or whatever like big uh, music school that she's trying to to try out for and um the movie is about this sort of uh push and pull that she has between staying with her family and and trying to help them um you know run a, a family business basically or doing something for herself and breaking out and actually pursuing her own passions and she ultimately decides okay i have to go pursue this passion i have to go uh, auditioned for the to be in the school and then her family shows up at the audition and while she's singing she performs the the lyrics to the song to them in the in the back row in sign language are the only sort of um, viewers of this performance aside from the people who are judging her to see if she can actually get into the school or not and it's this moment where she sort of breaks down on the stage while she's performing and it really enhances her, you know, the emotionality of the, the the song and her performance in that moment. But it also sort of bridges the gap between um, the, this that push and pull that that has been underlining this entire conflict of the movie. And it's it's this really beautiful moment where she realizes it's not necessarily one or the other. There is a way that these two things can coexist at the same time. Um, you know, I can I can love and support my family, and then also have the moment to sort of carve out and, and do my own thing in life. And it's not necessarily um, mutually exclusive or whatever. So uh, yeah, great moment. Loved it. Coda uh, is great. It's on Apple TV plus and they, and speaking of movies that were botched, um, they bought that movie from, you know, I think they acquired it at Sundance from like a record amount of money and not really a, a ton of people were talking about it. So hopefully they people just get completely dropped it, it on the service without any fanfare at all. It was very bizarre because that was the big hit out of Sundance. I remember yeah. everyone was kind of predicting that this would be the crowd pleaser movie that would become a big success and then disappeared. Yeah. All right. So it sounds like this is what makes the top 50. I'm fine with it because I do agree that this moment is just, it's, it really is the culmination of the entire film, which at some points I found to be a little twee at sometimes, but I think this moment reaches a, mo- uh, a level of emotional clarity uh, and beauty that I think is, is really, really wonderful to see. So yeah, get it on the list. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. So I guess that means it's up to me. Um, I'm gonna kill. I'm gonna kill a couple. I'm gonna go through and kill a couple that belong to me, a couple that don't. Eight uh, bit Christmas, the ending. Who put this on here? Why? Sh- why should we keep it on this list? Okay. Um. This is a. This is a very personal one uh, for me, and I understand if no one else 
ends up wanting it here because uh, Eight Bit Christmas probably seems like a throwaway movie, and everyone's like, "Who cares? What the fuck?" Uh, like it's 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 a holiday comedy uh, from HBO Max, whatever. Uh, but the ending of this movie uh, surprised me for being uh, incredibly emotional and and heartfelt. Um, the premise of the movie. Uh, very much lends itself to being something like a, a Christmas story or a jingle all the way. It's set in the 80s. Uh, it's framed by Neil Patrick Harris as a parent telling his daughter about how um, he clamored to get a, a Nintendo, the original uh, 8-bit uh, enter- Nintendo Entertainment System that came out in the 90s. Uh, it's a very um, fun, silly kind kind of holiday comedy, uh, like I said, in the same vein as A Christmas Story. Uh, and the ending, you uh, are kind of expecting it to be uh, much more similar to a Christmas story where he actually does finally uh, get the Nintendo for Christmas. There's there's even a whole setup where there's like uh, a, a gift that's found after they open all their presents and you think he's going to get it and he doesn't. And then uh, at the very like end of Christmas, um, there's one more thing that his dad uh, wants to show him in the in the backyard. And it's not a Nintendo, but it is. he's built him this entire huge uh, massive tree fort. Um, that's incredibly cool. And they have this moment where they kind of bond over what he does. Cause throughout the movie, the kid has been totally disinterested in helping his dad with any of like fixing stuff around the house or like working with tools or anything like that. He's so obsessed with getting the Nintendo. Um, and in the framing device with Neil Patrick Harris in the present day, you, uh, you find out that this is where they like discovered their thing together, the thing that they would come to bond over uh, as father and son, where they um, started building cabinets and furniture and things like that. And they, they both engraved their initials uh, in the stuff they have, and it's all around the house. Um, I'm sorry, I'm getting emotional here for a second. It's revealed uh, in the end that in present day, uh, their dad has recently died. And so there's like an empty place uh, sitting at the table on Christmas where um, his dad would have been. And it's just, it hit me personally, um, because as I've talked about on the podcast before, my uh, my dad passed away last year. And so it's a very silly movie, um, but this like ending hit me really hard. And I, like I said, I know it's super personal and it's just me. I don't want that to necessarily influence it getting on the list. Um, but I just wanted to uh, mention it because like it, it came out of nowhere to like hit me. And I was like, Holy shit. Like what the fuck is this movie doing? <laughs> um, so yeah, so there it is. Uh, I'm putting this in top 50. Um, you know, I think we would all sound like big jerks if we said, yeah, let's put it in uh, discussion. I wouldn't take it personally, honestly. Like this, I, 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 I know you guys know I'm not like getting emotional, like to like to get this on the list. And I don't want that to be the sole reason. But like it was just I was just so caught off guard by it. No, I think this is actually a good uh, thing that Jacob, you always talk about like the a big part of the reason that we do these lists is like sometimes to have like interesting moments from movies that aren't necessarily that great. And I think this is kind of like the perfect example of that. Even Brad is like, you know, yeah. this isn't like a, a brilliant movie or whatever, but it's a moment that actually works really well. So I think it sort of like embodies the the spirit of what we're trying to do here. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, this is the, 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 the we, we want to highlight moments not necessarily movies and this moment impacted brad and i want to have it on this based on his reaction i uh, i was being very callous it's all being an easy cut but nope it just ate up another slot thanks brad um <laughs> all right but i do want to cut um a couple rapid fire ones i want to cut army of the dead the opening credits because i think they're pretty neat and they're the best part of the movie but zach snyder's whole i do cool opening credits and do a disappointing movie afterward thing he's done that a few times and these are his weakest opening credits even though they're pretty good so i'm cutting them unless anybody disagrees no cut nope. it 
Uh, the Conjuring Devil Made Me Do It. Uh, Vera Farmiga has the pills. This is from the very end of the movie where our intrepid ghost hunting duo. The movie, the movie isn't very scary, but it is full of really great relationship stuff between these two. Where he's having a heart attack and he thinks he's forgotten his pills after they survived this ghostly encounter. And then she reveals that she remembered his pills. And I went, oh, it's really sweet. I love these characters. And this, in this really not scary horror movie, the movie really understood that we kind of watch Conjuring movies now for those two. For Vera Farmiga and Patrick Wilson instead of scares so i want to at least mention that because i thought it was a very sweet moment in a um in a, in a pretty okay movie uh chris do you have any love for that moment it's a good movie i i really like this movie too but i'm i'm fine cutting it uh it's like the i love the conjuring series and i hope it never ends but this is probably the weakest entry in the series even though i i like the movie so yeah i'm, I'm fine cutting that uh i want to cut the forever purge el paso was a war zone i like the purge movies quite a bit i like the forever purge uh, it's a very, very dark movie. It is feels very much like a direct, uh, even more so than previous Purge movies. This is this is a horror movie that was made in the final throes of the Trump era, and um, watching uh, the, the El Paso sequence where all the Purge supporters have turned El Paso, Texas, into a war zone, while people are trying to flee over the border in, into Mexico. Uh, while they're being shot at and tortured and burned. It's a true nightmare sequence. And the Purge movies have always been kind of, look how silly we are. We're like, things are bad, but wink, wink, nudge, nudge. It's, it's, it's political, but we're having fun here. River Purge crosses a line here in a way that really kind of upset me, especially watching it in Texas. Uh, so I want to call attention to it, but I also want to cut it immediately. It's not going to make our top 50. Um, we also want to, I want to cut old. The, we put here old. The beach makes no. you old. <laughs> I put this on here, and I want this on the <laughs> But is it a specific moment, or is it, or is it just the, the fact that the beach yeah. makes you old? Yeah, it's the moment when the beach makes them old, Jacob. <laughs> okay. I'm honestly not going to fight for it this much, but old is such a wacky movie. It was, it was really hard to narrow down one scene. And just the premise alone, I felt like, was was really what I wanted to highlight because that's literally it. They go to the beach and then they're like, oh shit, this beach is making us old. But <laughs> look, <laughs> I also want this to be over. So I'm fine if we cut it. <laughs> okay. I'll put it in discussion. We'll, we'll probably cut it later. Um, one more we're going to cut. Um, sorry, two more we're going to cut. Just get us going. A Quiet Place Part 2, the opening flashback. Uh, I like Quiet Place Part 2. I think the opening flashback is the worst part of the movie. Oh, interesting. I like that it scene just, a lot, but yeah, I'm fine with that. I like it too, but it, it literally felt like a scene for where John Krasinski was like, I got to put myself on this movie somewhere because I'm dead. So, yeah. <laughs> I, just, yeah. I just also, I, I think for me, uh, I was the one who put it on here actually because it was the one thing that I, we had the movie on here and we were trying to figure out if there was any moments on here and this was the one that stuck out to me because uh, I think there's some really um, good filmmaking here. Just the way the camera um, weaves throughout this main part of this small town. Uh, as the invasion starts happening. Um, if I remember correctly, I think that it's made to look like a single shot sequence, right? Man, it's been so long since I see a, a, a large part of it is a single shot, yeah. Yeah, right. and I, I remember being very, very impressive, but, but uh, it's it's not as if it's something like a scene that we haven't seen before. I just like, uh, I liked how it was executed um, and how it uh, set everything up. But but yeah, I, I don't have a problem if we want to cut it. All right, I'm going to cut it. We, we got to get this rolling. Um, all right, so let's have the Green Knight conversation, guys. Yeah. Um, Talk the Green Knight, and I have pulled up the entire poem. By the way, <laughs> all right, start reading it now. <laughs> okay, um, here's we discussed this in part one, so I don't want to linger on it too much. But the moments we have already in discussion: the, the ladies' monologue, the finale, the ghost in the pond, and the Christmas game. 
I genuinely think that we should cut Ghost in the Pond. I put this one on here. It's a very, very creepy little short story in the middle of, in the middle of the movie. This is actually my favorite part of the movie, other oh. than the ending. Oh. But I'm fine. I'm fine with cutting it. Okay, I like that scene a lot, but I feel like the ending is a, is a better choice for what we want out of this moment. I love that scene too. Oh, I also forgot to add the giants. I love when the giants show up. The big new giants. <laughs> the new giants just walking by, and uh, and Gawain tries to wave them down, and they're just like, "You're just an ant. I have no time for you. We exist in a different world." And they just keep trudging right. on. I love that. He's like, can I ride on your shoulders? And they're like, no, get out of here, you weirdo. And they walk uh, away. So here's my suggestion. We take the finale. We take the ladies' monologue from our last, from part one, put them both in the top 50, and delete the Christmas game, which is a great, great scene. But I feel like this satisfies the Green Knight in that we have the finale, the scene we all agree is good, and the ladies' monologue, which is HG's favorite moment. And we've, we already had a whole bunch of, it's your favorite moment, let's put it on the list for everybody else except HD. Can so, I at least read the monologue? I pulled it up this time. We have, we're already close to two hours. <laughs> I'm going to read a couple sentences. Okay. <laughs> Red is the color of lust, but green is what lust leave behind, leaves behind in heart and womb. Green is what left when ardor fades, when passion dies, when we die too. When you go, your footprints will fill with grass. Moss shall cover your tombstone. As the sun rises, green shall spread over all and all its shades and hues. The verdigris will overtake your swords and your coins and your battlements and try as you might. All you hold dear will succumb to it. Your skin, your bones, your virtue. Okay, there. I just wanted to say it because that's why I liked it and wasn't my paraphrasing wasn't doing it justice. So there. All right. Does anybody disagree with me that the finale and ladies' monologue go right in the top fifty? Then we close the book in Green Knight. Yes, that's fine. Do it. Do it. Okay. All right. That's it for me. That was my killing spree. Let's let's let's, um, let's go on to um, HG. All right. I guess I'll go through some killing sprees too. Uh, Benedetta, Jesus didn't mention you. This is a very a good part moment. I found really, really funny. It's really funny. Um, so this is when uh, Benedetta is describing one of her visions to all of the nuns who uh, some of them are in doubt of her and some of them are uh, in awe of her. And one of them who are who's in doubt of her, her rival, her chief rival, who's been calling uh, Benedetta's story into um, skepticism the entire time, asks what jesus has said of her and benedetta says jesus didn't mention you and it's it's such a petty mean girl moment in um paul verhoven's uh nun lesbian nun erotica film that i just laughed out loud i think it's incredibly funny i still think about this moment actually but i don't think it's the moment that we'll be putting on the list if we do put a moment from benedetta so we can cut benedetta benedetta jesus Jesus didn't mention you should we talk about that one right now hg uh, yeah, let's talk about the other moment that I think should be on the list. The Virgin Mary dildo. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that the Virgin Mary dildo is kind of the crux of this movie. <laughs> it represents everything this movie is, which is lewd and uh, kind of crude, uh, but at the same time, somewhat of a commentary on our religious systems and infrastructure. Uh, and, you know, it's basically a, a wooden wooden Virgin Mary statue that Benedetta brought with her since she was young uh, to this convent. And the nun that she starts to have an affair with carves out, um, starts to carve out this dildo and turns it, <laughs> carves out this Virgin Mary statue and turns it into a dildo. And um, 
you know, this there's a whole sex scene where she starts using a dildo. <laughs> the imagery is hilarious because you see the Virgin Mary like head like coming in and out uh during this scene and then it plays a part in the entire trial that benedette is put on in which um they discover this 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 virgin mary dildo and it becomes part of uh the 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 church's attempts to slander her um and uh libel her and uh it's it's incredible because it's it seems like a dirty joke, but it also plays a crucial part in the plot uh, and in the unraveling of the religious infrastructure. So I I think we should put the Virgin Mary dildo on the list. Uh, yeah, I support this guy. On the list uh, yeah, I support it too. How can you say no to a Virgin Mary dildo? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, cutting a couple more things. Let- Wait, real quickly before, before, we, before we go on. Mm-hmm. I am gonna, I'm cutting. Jesus didn't mention you. Brad and Ben, are you guys cool with the Virgin Mary dildo going into the top fifty, or something? You guys? No, it's, this sounds. I haven't seen Benedetta, and it sounds that sounds just ridiculous and wild and weird enough that it's, it needs to be on our list. Yeah, I've seen the movie. I liked it a lot, and I think this moment is is really good. Right. So yeah, put it on there. Locked in. Uh, another thing I'm cutting is Red Rocket. Bye bye bye. Uh, I, I added this to the list. Um, it actually was a moment that someone had added the title, and I was like, oh, this is the the thing that I remember the most. Um, and it's not really. A moment specifically, but a kind of a running theme throughout the film. First, the film starts off with the best use of InSync as a needle drop. Just bye bye bye, playing this uh, in this really cheery pop way as Simon Rex's character uh, is on a bus, sleeping on a bus, and heading back to his hometown. Uh, and he's just grimy and filthy and covered in bruises, and he's battered. And um, it's it's this disconnect between this cheery pop song and Simon Rex, who it, who plays a washed up porn star returning to his hometown after he's basically indebted and on the run from people who are trying to get their money from him and stuff. And um, suddenly, as he wakes up, the song cuts off, and it cu- brings us back to this uh, weird, grimy reality that Sean Baker has brought us to. Um, and Bye 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 then comes back in the form of a acoustic song played by Strawberry, who is Simon Rex's new obsession. He, fall, he kind of falls in lust with her, and he believes that he can turn her into the next great porn star and thus starts a, a weird um, relationship with her, which is um, predatory in a lot of in every way. Um, and she sings this really sweet version of Bye Bye Bye. And he kind of has this strange existential crisis in that he maybe you you think that maybe he's starting to reconsider what his whole life is what, and what he's trying to do. He's always trying to uh, get his next big break. He's always trying to get the easy way out. And he sees Strawberry as that. And for some reason, when she starts to sing this this sweet rendition of Bye Bye Bye, he seems to have some sort of crisis. And then it goes away and he, um, you know, it goes back to his money grabbing ways. But uh, Bye Bye Bye, the best use of an instinct meal drop in a movie ever. And also strangely relatable to this uh, pop grime vision of Texas that is uh, Red Rocket. So we can cut that. I'm said my piece about it. Um, I think we can cut Spencer eating the pearls. Uh, I think we've had we have one moment from Spencer on the film uh, on our list, and I think it's probably the best moment of the movie. I just wanted to shout out this moment because it's it's one of sort of the hallucinations that Diana has while she is trapped in this horrible Christmas weekend. 
um, with the royal family and she starts to eat one of the courses during their dinners and uh, her pearls, uh, she grabs the pearls, which are actually the same pearls that Charles had bought for Camilla, his mistress, and she grabs them and they fly off onto fly off her neck and fly onto the table and into her soup and she starts eating the soup ravenously and biting into the pearls and it's this horrifying like body horror moment really where she's just biting into these pearls her teeth are bleeding and it's this horrible crunching sound is happening um and i think it's just a, a really chilling really striking moment but we can cut it um we have four moments from detain <laughs> Uh, should, should, should we have somebody else take over for a bit, HD? Since yes. talking Okay. All right. I think I'm done. All right. Okay. Well, that's that's a good setup for me because please, can we kill almost all of these detained scenes? Because <laughs> I hate to be a killjoy, but I do not like this movie, and I know everyone thinks this is like some friggin' masterpiece, and I did not really like this movie at all. I appreciate how audacious it is. I appreciate how how it swings for the fences, but. I'm sorry. I felt like 90% of this movie was like someone poking you in the ribs and being like, hey, isn't this shocking? Like, all right. All right. I get it. Wait, Chris, so, before you do anything else, I, need, I want you to read each of these moments out loud because I want to hear you say them. Uh, how many of you are there? Dancing firefighters. She fucks the car. All right. That has my vote because right there. Uh, she gives birth to the car baby. So honestly... If I had actually pick one of these, I honestly would probably pick the Dancing Firefighters because I felt like that was the most enjoyable scene in the movie. But I feel like if we have to have one scene for this movie on the list, fucking a car should probably be it. Because how can you, you know, she fucks a car. Put, put that on the list. I liked Ton a lot more than you. Um, but I also do think, yeah, we, we need to trim this list down. I would, how many of you are there? Which is a scene where... The main character who is a serial killer with a plate in her head who also has sex with cars is pregnant with a car baby and ends up living with a bunch of firefighters. It's, it's a wild movie. Um, <laughs> it's where she's uh, commits a murder and all the mur- all the victims' roommates start popping up one at a time and she's forced to kill them all uh, as, 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 as the situation spirals out of control. A huge, huge laugh for me. I, I think that was one of the funniest moments of, of last year. Uh, but it definitely is not as maybe as memorable or as audacious as the car sex scene or even the car birth at the end of the movie. So I also really like Titan. Um, and I am, I added the dancing firefighters because I think it's actually a strangely lovely moment because first of all, the idea that firefighters, these hyper-masculine uh, versions of firefighters at that would just after work uh, cut loose by dancing <laughs> Is really really it's funny. A, it's a really good scene. It's a, I really but it's like also a really sweet scene because they're just kind of, um, yeah, they're bonding and sort of like this. It's like a masculine bonding moment, and they're like really enjoying themselves, and they're cutting loose and, and like a little free. And then it sort of culminates in um, Agatha Roussel's character um, uh, sort of uh, showing, doing her her stripper moves and shocking everyone. But I actually quite like this scene. I think it's very lovely. But I'm, I think if I'm going to. Um, vote for one scene i think it should be the giving birth to the car baby actually because uh i found the scene surprisingly sweet as i found titan to be surprisingly sweet um it's it's very monstrous it's very body horror it's very grotesque and and really hard to watch but it's this shared moment of 
of almost of love between uh, the two characters, the serial killing uh, car fucking lady and the man that she has tricked into thinking that she is his adopted son or his not his adopted son, his lost son. And People who haven't seen this movie think we're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and he, she has revealed to him that she is, you know, not his son. She's in fact a woman who's heavily pregnant with a car's baby. And um, when she gives birth, she gives birth to the strange car baby that's like half car uh and i think through all the death and destruction and violence that this movie wreaks and that is wrought throughout this film to have it end in life despite whatever kind of weird life it is through this strange love between the two characters um i think it's it's kind of wonderful (laughs) uh ben and brad have you seen Titan? I have, and I didn't like it. Uh, Ben, finally, (laughs) someone in my corner. Um, It was a little too much for me. Um, Not in like a uh, in like a like Chris was saying, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Like, isn't this wild? Like, holy shit, I can't handle this movie. It was just kind of like unpleasant and bleak. Uh, I see a little bit of the sweetness HG is talking about in there, but for me, it just wasn't. it, It didn't coalesce into anything. That I really um, that really connected with me in a serious way. Uh, I honestly wouldn't put any of the moments from from this movie on the list, but uh, maybe that's just me. I mean, I'm mm. also fine with that, but we gotta have, I feel we, like we, we got to have one. The movie was too big of a deal last year, and uh, all right, either either all right, let's let's just decide right now. Either fucks the car or car baby has to. It's one of those two. Which which should it be? I think it's between me and you, Jacob. So are you you're voting for fucks the car? No, I vote, I, my vote would have been for how many of you are there, but since that's not going to be an option, I'm going to go ahead and put my vote behind you with Car Baby. Yay, Car Baby! All right, Car Baby, it is. Let's put Car Baby on there. Uh, what else? All right, I'm, all right, Chris, I'm still going. You, you still you, yeah. All right, we have two Belfast moments on here. I was really not blown away by Belfast, and since one of these moments is Jamie Dornan singing, and we already have a Jamie Dornan singing scene. I would say let's cut Everlasting Love and let's keep the, the bus scene if we have to keep anything or Belfast on here. Uh, so I put both Belfast moments on here. I'm not necessarily super uh, attached to like uh, forcing them onto the list, but out of the two moments, I actually think that the Everlasting Love moment is the better one because it's not just Jamie Dornan singing. Um, it's also Katria uh, uh, Belfort uh, dancing. And like it's this is a scene that happens after... Uh, Jamie Dornan's father has passed away, and so it's after a funeral. But it's this such, it's this joyful, uh, lovely moment where Jamie Dornan is singing "Everlasting Love," uh, and his wife. Um, they've been having some trouble uh, during this time. Uh, is just uh, looking at him with all the love in her eyes, and uh, Katrina's eyes also like they they sparkle in black and white, even though there's no color. Uh, and just watching her dance, and then watching Jamie Dornan sing, uh, the scene is just very uh, a, a lovely moment uh, in in the movie. And so, if we we're gonna put one of the two on there, I would put that one, just because even though the catching the butts out of Belfast moment is like the the culmination of the entire movie, and it's a big moment for for the story, I think the other moment is more encapsulating of like what we try to do with this list. Now I don't know what to do. <laughs> Should we throw Everlasting Love in discussion for now? I guess. And cut and the other just cut the both. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Let's do that. And then finally, uh, the one I want to keep, because I actually haven't said that, is the Flea scene. Because we don't have anything from Flea on here. Flea is a really interesting documentary that's told via animation. Um, it's about uh, – it's, it's this one – man's point of view talking about how he, he was trying to uh, get out of Afghanistan 
uh, and he uh, he's gay and um, you know he's talking about his sexuality throughout the whole film and there's this really great moment near the end where he goes to uh, stay with his is it his uncle or his guy? I feel like I can't remember. It's, it's someone his who, brother, I think. All right, it's someone. I'm sorry, I haven't seen this in a while, but it's someone in his family, and he he finally confesses to um, a group of his family members that he's gay, and everyone's like really silent and taken aback. And you think it's going to be this thing where like they're all going to judge him, and then his relative actually drives him to like the only like gay bar in the area, and he goes into it, and it's like his first time he's ever been in a gay bar, and it's the first time he's ever like felt accepted in his sexuality. And it's just this really sweet moment in this really harrowing documentary. Uh, and uh, I would I would like this to be on the list because the movie in general is great. And this is like the only thing from the film we have on the list. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that this is one of the few times where he can sort of because throughout the film, I mean, is sort of burdened by all the secrets that he's keeping and not this, his sexual, sexuality being only one of them. And he's always looking behind his shoulder and always paranoid that he's going to be found out and here to see him finally have some sort of release and to have be supported by his family in such a, a way that's so casual and easy. It's it's really wonderful. It's it's a great there, moment. There's, there's this great like visual gag too, where like all throughout the movie, every time he, you see him like attracted to another a male figure, like he has like a Jean-Claude Van Damme poster and he's like staring at it longingly and he imagines the poster winks at him. And there's another moment too, where he imagines that uh, this male figure winks at him. And then when he goes to the gay bar, the bartender there actually winks at him for real. And it's like this great callback to these like fantasy things he's having. Yeah. Yeah. So we need to lock it in. Yeah. I I, I have not seen Flea yet, but this feels like a movie I absolutely need to see immediately. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really incredible, good. Jacob. All right. Flea's locked in. Uh, Brad, this is getting a very small list. What do you want to kill? What do you want to keep? Um, I think that we can kill uh, No Sudden Move. Surprise. It's Matt Damon. Uh, <laughs> because, uh, because even though it is a surprise to see Matt Damon uh, at the end of No Sudden Move, it's not necessarily like a big moment. Um, and even though, uh, you know, that, that does like single the beat the beginning of the end for for that movie and all the double crossing that takes place afterwards it really is just uh, a somewhat surprising appearance by matt damon in a steven soderbergh movie and yeah. I, I don't think it's big enough for the list yeah i put this on here mostly so i can talk about how much i like i like no sudden move and how much it, i think about it a lot but i think about the whole movie as a I think the movie as a whole i never i don't think about individual scenes of no sudden move i just want to shout out that no sudden move is on hbo max at steven soderbergh making a really terrific small-scale noir that I dug a lot. We can cut it, but No Side Movie is really good. Right on. Fair enough. Um, I think that we should... Uh, let's talk about Power of the Dog. I think only one of these moments probably makes the list, but it's a matter of which one is the bigger, more important moment. My gut tells me that it's Phil bathing in the river because that's when you really truly get a grasp on uh, his love for Brock Henry, where his um, anger and bitterness comes from. Um, and it sets the stage for, for what's to come later. But also the reveal of Peter having the rope um, that had anthrax on it and was the result of Phil's demise is also kind of a, a quietly sinister moment that changes your perspective on the, re- uh, the rest of the movie as well. So Power of the Dog fans, what do you guys think? Oh, I really like both moments. I'm leaning towards the river bath because... For the exact reasons that you said, it's kind of it changes our perspective. Not per, 
perspective on Phil, who's this sort of towering menace of a character the entire time. You don't know why he's such an emotional terrorist in these ways to Kirsten Dunst's character uh, and all the characters around him, really. And you see him suddenly have this moment of reflection, vulnerability, and you realize it all comes together. It all clicks into place that he, you know, is he is gay and he loves he loves Brocco Henry and it's him I think he's he's masturbating with the um with the scarf. handkerchief or scarf yeah. that he yeah. got from Bronco Henry Bronco Henry uh, and uh, it's just a really wonderful wordless performance from Benedict Cumberbatch and uh, you see everything stripped away not just his clothes but his entire persona that hyper masculine yeah. persona that he puts on for the rest of the world. Great. Yeah, I I think this is a great movie. Um, if we have to pick one, that that would probably be the the best the, to pick, just because it is literally the scene that makes you like recontextualize what you've been seeing everything up until this point. And the whole, the whole movie is kind of like that. It keeps introducing scenes that recontextualize things you've seen before, but that's like the first big one, really. Yeah, yeah. I agree. That's a great Cumberbatch moment. I think maybe the like one of the best moments of his career, acting wise. So I think that should go in there. Even though the the rope moment is really good, I think it's like. It's good from a narrative level, but if we're trying to isolate individual, uh, yeah, moments that that sort of left an impact uh, through performance uh, in particular, I think the river bath is the way to go. Okay, yeah. this is the point where I admit that I have not seen Power of the Dog. But, oh, oh, it's very good. It was spoiled for me months ago. It's part of my job. Um, but I, I, I will say that the conversation around this movie about how. Oh man, Cumberbatch. We've always liked him, but Cumberbatch. I, I feel like it needs, to, is, it needs to be Cumberbatch moment here. He's really, yeah. really good in this, Jacob. This, I, I honestly think this is like his best, the best performance he's ever given in a movie is in this. All right. Locked in. All right, uh, Ben, this is a very small list of things we have not talked about yet. Yeah, um, I want the title card appearing 40 minutes in and drive my car to be on the list. Um, <laughs> okay, I put that on as a gag. I did not think it would be in on the list, but I would be happy to put it on the list. I mean, I, it's just so rare that you see something like that. And, uh, you know, I, I think in our, for us who, you know, we watch a ton of movies, obviously, um, anytime a movie does something different like that, I, it automatically gets my attention. But I think the reason, aside from just like the cool, like the ballsiness of, of doing it, the, the sort of uh, unconventionality of it, is that it actually works thematically. Because like the first 40 minutes of the movie sort of tell its own contained story it's almost like a short film prequel to the real movie in a way this is a three hour long movie but the the first 40 minutes are so crucial to understanding the backstory and the the emotional uh, state of the lead character that um that it really makes a lot of sense for it for it to come at the point that it does so uh i think i i, I like this movie a lot um I, you know I, there are I could definitely see the case being made for some of the other moments on the list. We have the story of the girl breaking in and cigarettes through the sunroof on here. But um, I don't know how many drive my car moments we could make, but I, I would love to see the title card appearing for 40 minutes in on the list. Do it. Throw it yeah, on. Just a word of warning. If we yeah. put this one on here, the chance of getting another one on the list drops. If she has anything to say about these other moments, we should say it now. I do have something to say about the other moments, but I've been putting it off because I'm not sure exactly how to how – to, uh, convey why I want this moment in particular on the list because it's a very short moment and this is the moment I'm speaking of is the cigarettes through the sunroof and I just first I think the image is is really really beautiful um, and it's a moment where uh, the main character who is a 
a director of theater and an actor, and he's the his wife had um, been cheating on him uh, when they were at, towards the end of their marriage before she suddenly passed, and he was never able to find any sort of understanding of why she was doing what she was doing or really of her and she has kind of been an eternal mystery to him uh in the many in the years after her death uh and in the aftermath of that a couple years later he's uh working as a director for this new showing of a play that he made famous in japan which is sort of like a multilingual version a multilingual staging of a checkoff play and he's given a driver a chauffeur to drive to, from his hotel to the um, the rehearsal space. And um, the driver is just like the stoic young woman um, who has her own demons. And they, in throughout the course of the film, uh, sort, sort of find kindred spirits in each other, sort of kindred wounded spirits. And um, there's not really much in the way of speaking at first, but they slowly throughout the course of the film just kind of start to connect and start to understand each other more and um there the moment i'm speaking of just happens uh, i don't know midway through the film uh they're both they're both smoking cigarettes and uh he, they both put their their cigarettes um out of out through the sunroof and it's just like this one shot that i i found really beautiful and moving and for some reason kind of uh, a com- a uh, embodiment of the film and that and the connections that we make and the how everyone has their own demons and everything like that. Um, Chris, can you back me up on this? I know you really like the shot too. I don't know if I'm completely doing it justice by speaking about it like this. Um, you know, I I think you did a good job explaining it. I mean, honestly, I would I would kind of like to have the both of them on there if we but uh, maybe we're pushing it to have more than one i don't know i don't know how about oh. how about we cut the story of the girl breaking in yeah put title title card and cigarettes in the discussion we guarantee you on the mix in the list yeah do it yes i okay. hope both of them would make the list too <laughs> okay so the one that i want to cut uh jacob i'm really sorry i i want to cut the bus fight from nobody Ooh. um I know that you like this movie a lot. I think uh, I, I wish I liked Nobody more as a movie. Um, Me too. I love the idea of of what it's doing and the idea of turning Bob Odenkirk into an action hero is just like really, uh, really compelling. But um, the movie fell flat for me. It felt like a John Wick light kind of thing. The bus fight is the standout moment from the movie, but it just didn't feel like it brought anything completely new or fresh to the table. It just sort of felt like um, they're going through the motions a little bit. So uh, oh, I, I just don't think it belongs on the, on the list. I strongly disagree. I, what I like about this scene is unlike John Wick, uh, Bob Odenkirk is getting his ass handed to him so many times. He's being thrown out windows. He's being t- taken down, thrown to the ground. Everything that happened to Bob Odenkirk happened in this movie, but he keeps getting back up. He's the, he's the Rocky Balboa of sadistic action heroes. And it is... A scene is, I think, really well saved. Even the rest of the movie doesn't, doesn't work work for you. I, I get that. I understand why, it especially didn't work for you and Chris. Even though I dig the whole thing, uh, this scene is it's very length. It's paced. The fact that it's it's he doesn't move like John Wick or like most action heroes who are very fast, very you know martial artsy. There's no, there's no Neo here. There's no no Matrix here. It's just a guy who can take blows and can just stay standing longer than everybody else. And watching. Bob Odenkirk, a man in his fifties, a guy who looks like our, looks like a dad, just absorb that punishment, and get back up, and 
get thrown out of the bus through the window and getting up and getting back on the bus through the front door. Uh, it's just, for me, an astonishing use of Bob Odenkirk. Uh, uh, it, it's, I, I, I just have a hard time not seeing it on this list. Uh, but if, if everybody else disagrees, I'm, I'm okay cutting it. But I need to hear everybody else say, Jacob, you're crazy. I haven't seen nobody, so I'm going to pull myself out of this conversation. Um, I, yeah, see, I love this scene too. And, and like for all the things, reasons that Jacob said, but we are getting down like to the end of it. And we have like, what, I mean, like at least 20 things that are still in discussion. Um, Jacob, do you think that like this, this scene's going to beat out a lot of those? I would pick the bus fight before most of the things in the discussion. Yeah, I think that's fair too. I, I'm, I'm on your side, Jacob. Okay, put it in, in discussion and let's instead cut Luca dreaming of flying on a Vespa under a sky of fishes. Uh, I, I added Luca the scene and, and I kind of expected it to be cut, but I think it's a really lovely scene and just kind of speaks to the simple pleasures of Luca, the deceptively simple pleasures of Luca and how the imagination is just so wonderful and um, I don't know, pure and innocent and I'm fine with cutting it. It's fine. All right. Well, all right. rather than go around again, we only have three things left in this list. I think we can cut all three left in this list. Honestly, there's two scenes from Ryan, the last dragon, um, the fight between Raya and Amari and turning the stone together. I think we all like Raya, but I think the, the right Disney movie in Encanto is already on our list. Yeah. Let's cut Raya. And finally, uh, Shang-Chi and we just have Tony Lung here. And I think it's telling that Tony Lung is so good. He made this list uh, of, of like potentials, but I don't think the movie ever gives Tony Lung a truly great scene. I uh, think he, I will say that Tony Lung is so good in this movie that I think he overshadows the rest of the movie and makes it lesser because he's so good <laughs> uh, that you're like, oh, wow, I wish I could see the Tony Lung movie. Um, so if I were to choose to keep a scene from Shang-Chi, then I would keep Tony Lung or t- keep a moment from and that would be him. But look, if we can't have the beach makes you old on the list, we can't have just hey, Tony. Lung. I put the beach makes you old in, in discussion. So, oh, yeah. all right. Well, then all right, we can cut Tony Lung. <laughs> it's fine. All right. But he, he is one, one, one of the best villain, best villain performances, if not the best villain, one of uh, our best currently working actors of our day. I'm just going to say, anyways, let's continue. All right, guys, we have 40 moments locked in. We have 10 more open slots. We have 27 in discussion. So 17 of these moments you get killed, 10 to make it to the final. Um, I'd recommend we look at these and just start chopping ones that we honestly think are among those 17 that need to be, that need to be killed. Uh, for example, um, every time King Shark speaks, I think, is not going to make that final 10. Yeah. Boo. <laughs> yeah. I want to cut, since we couldn't get Tony Lung, I think we should cut the bus fight from Shang-Chi. Because if I were going to choose one Shang-Chi thing, it will be Tony Lung. And I think the bus fight was fine. Okay, real quickly, Brad's the one who fought for both these moments. So I want to hear from Brad that. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am, man, I, I just love King Shark so much. I, I think he's just such a great character in this movie and so silly and just delightful. Um, I understand like, the inclination to cut it. I'm fine with cutting the bus fight. Um, okay, that's gone. Yeah. The bus fight from Shang-Chi, not the one from Nobody. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, let's, let's, let's get real then. Okay. Um, Friend Dispatch, we have one more. I'm okay cutting both Friend Dispatch moments. We have it's, it's represented on the list. I'm happy with what we have on the list. Are you guys cool with me cutting these? Let's cut yeah, them. That's fine. Okay, let's get this going. <sighs> Jacob, we got to put the freaking uh, lamb with the shotgun from, <laughs> or goat with the shotgun from lamb on. Just 
put it on the list. I haven't even seen this movie, but that sounded so crazy. <laughs> okay. Uh, I actually, all- even though I like this movie more than Jacob, I don't know if I would put it on the list just because it is wow. a crazy moment, but it's like, ah, uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know if that, that really explains it. <laughs> You're like, okay. oh, okay. Mm-hmm. I think we can cut every time to say Desert Power and Dune. Oh, no. no. <laughs> oh, God. I thought that was actually already on the list from... No, let's put it in discussion. The only one- Honestly, I, thought- I would rather have that on the list than what we have on the list. We have House Atreides Falls. Yeah, I'm sorry. I would vote for Desert, Desert Power, Power over that. Okay, so it sounds like Desert Power is, is, should be pumped up then. You guys all agree that Desert Power is part of the final 10 on this list. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't, but I'm, I'm fine with it. You're outvoting. Yeah, I don't... I don't really either, but that's fine too. Let's go for it. Okay, we're gonna lock that one in. Desert dude, we're gonna say desert power. All right, let's let's let's, let's, figure, let's have the entire conversation. Let's figure out in the heights. All right, at this point in the day, I'm very tired. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I I I'm gonna save my energy for the for the nobody fight scene. So I think we can cut the close up of Navi in ninety six thousand and put Pacienciefe on the list. Yes, please. That's, yeah, that's fine. Is everybody else okay with that? Do it. Sure. Oh man! We're losing okay. spots, and we only have two more. We need to get two more slots for drive my car. <laughs> All right, you know what? I'm going to uh, renege on my choice for cigarettes. I think we should put the title card up here as 40 minutes in because I actually clapped when that moment happened. <laughs> All, All right. right, let's let's lock it in. Um, where is it on my list? Um, At the bottom, bottom 18. Oh, wait, I'm gonna say I slept on this. I slept and, and, and thought hard about this. And at the point of this list is great moments, even in bad movies. Michael Jordan arrives in Space Jam: New Legacy should be on this list. Yes, sure. I absolutely agree. It is too good of a gag not to be on this list. Yeah, I haven't seen it, but it made me laugh when we talked about it yesterday. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> do it. All right. West Side Story: America. Mm, I really good. want this to be on the list, honestly. I do too, to be honest. Yeah, you know what? Let's get it on the list. It's such a good performance. It's like yeah. so colorful. It's so dynamic. Uh, yeah, let's get it on. Ben? Uh, yes, yes, do it. It's better than a lot of the other stuff we have in discussion. Okay. All right, we have, that means we have five slots left. We have five slots right. left and uh, seven, Jacob, 17 we should... movies. <laughs> <All right. laughs> we, we should cut back to 1994 from Fear Street. As much as you and I love that moment, I don't think it's going to make it, but it's a truly great moment from yeah. Fear Street. Uh, sh- shout out to the, the secret fourth film of the Fear Street trilogy. Really amazing. Yes. Really, truly incredible moment. Um, but yeah, it's, we can cut it. Okay, uh, I think we can cut the free guy moment. I think there was too much backlash toward it. Sorry, from, from Brad. Yeah. You know what? Go ahead. You guys can all go to hell. <laughs> <laughs> and as much as it pains me, go ahead and cut the beach makes you old. Because I admit that's not actually a moment, but gosh, <laughs> the beach made made them old. So I just wanted to point that out. All right. <laughs> with, with five slots left, um, God damn it. Um, the Nobody Bus Fight, I think it belongs in, in that last five. Even if it's like the, the number 50 on this list. I think it was the hardest hitting, most well staged, most well shot fight scene in 2021. You know what? Since you're willing to fight for it so much, let's put it on. I mean, yeah, I feel like if anyone remembers anything about that movie, they remember that scene. So seven minutes of Bob Odenkirk getting the shit beat out of him until everyone else is so tired he beats the shit out of them. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, do it, Jacob. Okay. All right, that's the one I, was, I really wanted. The rest of these, I, they're, they're ones here I like, but that's, that's one I'll, I'll, I'll chill out a bit now. Um, well, since we have a couple slots left, we can get drive my car cigarettes through the sunroof on there. 
Right, I actually so don't really care about any of the other these other ones. So can we cut Michael Myers? Can't stop. Can't stop. Won't stop. All right. Fine. All right. Fine. Fine. But you're gonna feel really silly when evil dies tonight, Jacob. <laughs> <laughs> I think the card counter should be on this list. I kind of think so too. Like listening or thinking back to the way that Chris described that scene. Um, I mean, I certainly yeah. won't object. It'd be nice to have that. It was my list. favorite scene from the card counter. So let's do it. All right. Leaves us with three slots left and 11 titles. Um, we can cut tragedy to Macbeth. We have it rep- up in the list. We talked about how much we like Bids of Washington. Um, I want to save those last few thoughts for other movies. Yeah. Should we get the rescue on there? Yeah, I think the rescue should be on this list. More doc representation, a moment that left people who watch it like jaws on the floor. Uh, I would like the rescue to be on this list for, for sake of diversifying our genres. Yeah, throw it on there. Um, since we already have a, a Trinity and, and Neo moment on the list, you can go ahead and cut Trinity remembers Neo. You know, I do love that scene. Yeah, right. when she when she turns against her stupid yeah, fake family. Yeah, her dumbass family stinks. She says, get out of here. <laughs> All right. Looking at the rest of these, I kind of feel like I want to throw Brad a bone and back him on the King Shark thing now because there's only two slots left. Um, but we can also back Brad by putting in the Tokyo fight from Godzilla versus Kong. I would prefer King Shark to be there over Godzilla versus Kong, but that's just me. Maybe I don't know. I will vote for King Shark too. Yeah, King Shark. Let's go with King Shark. <laughs> King Shark is adorable. Right. Can we can we cut some more? We put King Shark up there. I, I just want to make sure we, we feel good about this. Can we cut? Katie is LGBTQ. I, I love this first machine. I love this, but uh, but that's it's less of a moment and more of a character. I, yeah. I, I think we should cut it. Let's cut it. Yeah. All right. Um, we, we think we should cut Belfast. Everlasting love. No one seems that excited by it. Oh, fine. Actually, Brad, Brad, here's my question: Would you sooner fight for Belfast, uh, Tokyo Fight from Godzilla versus Kong, or King Shark? King Shark. Okay, we're cutting Belfast right. then. There we go. There we go. Belfast fights King Shark. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's let's put King Shark on the list. All right, that means we have one slot left. And five and options. Five options. Oh, man. Shall we read the options? I, I, yeah, HC, watch read them. Wanted, so just first is like, Lamb, True Parentage. Next is Encanto, Surface Pressure. Next is Godzilla vs. Kong, Tokyo Fight. The Many Saints of New York, The Final Shot. And Last Drive My Car, Cigarettes Through the Sunroof. Well, clearly it's Surface Pressure at end of story, right? Should we get man. the Many Saints of New York? What are you going to say, Chris? Honestly, a part of me just wants it to be the lamb, the goat monster with a gun thing, just because that sounds fucking insane. But I also feel like that's a thing, like, if I finally saw it, I'd be like, it doesn't sound nearly as cool as it sounded in my head. So maybe not. Yeah, I will say it wasn't. it's not as cool yeah. as it sounds. I, I will say the fact that the people who have seen it both are like, eh, on it. Um, mm. I think we, okay. we can cut lamb. Yeah. All right, let's just go around. Should we just go around and everyone vote for one? Yeah. And whatever gets the most votes. Let's, okay. go, in the, let's go in the order of... of um, uh, HG, yeah. Chris, Brad, Ben, Jacob. So yeah, of the four, pick one. I vote for drive my car, cigarettes through the sunroof. Oh, sorry, that's me. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, oh man, now I already feel like I'm going to ruin this. I'm doing it. I'm voting for surface pressure. Uh, Brad. Um, Godzilla versus Kong. 
Wow. Uh, I haven't even seen The Many Saints of Newark because I'm currently watching The Sopranos for the first time. And I actually took my headphones off for the conversation about it earlier because <laughs> I'm like so invested. It's, it's different than like Spider-Man No Way Home. I've seen all the Spider-Man movies. I kind of like have an idea of how that movie is going to go. But I don't really know anything about Many Saints of Newark. Um, so I'm just going to be the chaos vote and vote for the final shot there because I really love the Sopranos and I hope that the Many Saints of Newark is good when I get around to watching it. So uh, it's just a blind faith vote. Oh, Jacob, it's up to you now. You're well, the... This is not binding, but I'm voting for surface pressure. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. I feel like that has to be it then. All right. It's going to be a constant surface pressure. No, but I, I want to make sure we're, if everybody, if, if half our crew is like, oh, that choice, I want to make sure we're not. No, I, I I'm like fine it. with that. I'm fine. Yeah. It's my favorite song in the movie. I have no objection. <laughs> okay. It sounds to me like Encanto service pressure. Yeah. It's on our final list. It was all a long oh. con to get that on the list. <laughs> Holding out off. a cigarette to the cigarettes <laughs> through the sunroof scene for Drive My Car. Holy crap, guys. That's 50 moments from 2021 on this list. Wow. We did it. So the, the first moment locked in was Malignant, the jail scene. The last <laughs> moment was Encanto service pressure. What a year. What a year. Cinema. I think we got to read them real quick just before we we wrap up, don't we? Isn't that what we normally do? Yeah, let's divide up by 10 entries each, so someone has to read them all. So, uh, H.E., read the first 10. All right. First is Malignant the Jail Scene, a.k.a. Gabriel versus Ladies Behind Bars, and then Cops. Next is Swan Song. Cameron says goodbye to his family and gives himself a goodbye. Next is Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar, Edgar's Prayer. Four is Ben and Let There Be Carnage, the club slash rave scene. Next is The Last Duel, every single scene with Ben Affleck. Next is Spencer. All I Need is a Miracle. Next, Nightmare Alley, the final scene slash job interview. Next is The Suicide Squad, Rat Save the Day slash Inside Sorrow's Eye. Next, Petite Maman, You Didn't Invent My Sadness. Ten is West Side Story, Cool. Uh, Chris, read the next ten. Uh, F9, The Tokyo Drift Crew is back. Fear Street, The Bread Slicer Kill. Dune, House of Trades Falls. Pig, Nick Cage Goes to a Restaurant. Tick, Tick, Boom, Why? No Time to Die, James Bond Dies. The French Dispatch, Bill Murray offers Jeffrey Wright a job. The Matrix Resurrections, Trinity Catches Neo. House of Gucci, Lady Gaga and Adam Driver have some sex. And the Mitchells versus the Machine, the Furby fight. Uh, Brad, read the next 10. Uh, we have Bo Burnham inside, Funny Feeling, Spider-Man No Way Home, The Spider-Man, Annette, The Accompanist's Monologue, Encanto, We Don't Talk About Bruno, Licorice Pizza, The Trucks Out of Gas, Ghostbusters Afterlife, Muncher Chase, The Harder They Fall, Breaking Idris Elba Out of the Train, The Tragedy of Macbeth, Something Wicked This Way Comes, and The Beatles Get Back, Paul McCartney Pulls Get Back from the Ether. One more on your 10. Uh, St. Maud, Maud on the Beach. Uh, ben, the next 10. Uh, last Night in Soho, Thomas and McKenzie goes back to the 60s for the first time. Derek Delgadio's In and of Itself, Reading the Letters, Coda, The Audition. 8-Bit Christmas, The Ending, The Green Knight, The Finale, The Green Knight, The Ladies' Monologue, Benedetta, The Virgin Mary Dildo, Titan, She Gives Birth to the Baby, The Car Baby, uh, Flea, Going to the Gay Bar, and uh, oh, it looks like a last-second switch here. Being the Ricardos, this is J. Edgar <laughs> Hoover on the phone. Uh, no, um, <laughs> uh, the Power of the Dog fills River Bath. And finally, Dune, every time they said Desert Power. Yes! Desert Power. Uh, in the Heights, uh, Paciente y Fe, Drive My Car, the title card appears 40 minutes in, Space Jam, A New Legacy, Michael Jordan Arrives, West Side Story, America, Nobody, The Bus Fight, 
the card counter, Oscar Isaac confronts Willem Dafoe. The rescue, drugging the kids to save their lives. The suicide squad, every time King Shark speaks. And number 50, Encanto, surface pressure. You know, guys, last year was pretty good. Good year for movies. And as always, we will uh, off mic rank these and do a published version of this on the on slashroom.com, you know, probably early next week. Yes, sounds good. All right, I think that's going to bring us to the end of, uh, of today's episode. You can find more about all the movies that we mentioned on today's show at SlashFilm.com. Um, SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps, and send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at peter at SlashFilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thank you all for listening, and we will talk to you tomorrow.